Good afternoon and welcome to the Hard Luck Show. I'm your certified, qualified West Side host, Steve Lucky Luciano. Coming at you from the bunker in Southern California. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, it is the greatest show on earth. Today, sitting across from me, my co-host and partner is Chumahan Bowen, American Indian, Southern Californian, elegant barbarian. Or as Lepkis called me, the elegant barbarian. Barbarian. Yeah, savage. Come on. It's getting braided up as my paint dries. The blood falls from the red sky. My legs singing that war. Come on. We'll break them up like Yeah, anybody wants to know. Savages. Draped up in a bear hide. Come on. Indians with savages. So believe me, check my stuff. Yeah. 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 And on sound, oh, blue Sean Lewis, certified audio professional, engineer for the show. Oh, this is Sean's sound. Yeah. Yeah. Is it Muddy Waters or what? John Lee Hooker. Hooker. A man. A man. A hobo's getting beat up by a woman. Like Jesse James. Like Jesse James. Just walking with my woman in the park. Homeless man getting beat up by a woman. I had a friend one time. Told me to call the police. At least I thought I did. He come to me. Said Johnny. Hey. I said hey. Said what man? Said what man? I said what man? I'm a what man? Yeah. You know, Sean. Uh, Sean brings up a lot of different music to me all the time, man. Mm-hmm. There's like a, uh, like one time I was just sitting there and it's just the craziest thing. This is like not too long ago, Steve. Mm-hmm. I was like doing my lawyer thing and. You know, Sean's kind of a recluse. You know, he does his own. He likes to do his own thing, whatever. Mm-hmm. And he never texts me, man. Never. I never get a text from Sean Hardly really? ever. I swear to God. What's that all about? I don't know. I don't. I, you know, I, I don't. What is that about? Remember, Sean, dude. I listen. Let me tell you something. I've had like heartfelt, near tear discussions with Sean about how I feel like. He doesn't really like me that much, or it's not really Wait my friend. Wait a minute. Yeah. Be- when is this all about? What be- the hell are you talking about? Because he doesn't communicate. He loves you. I know, but like, he doesn't communicate. So there's like a, a sense that he's like judging, or there's something. I don't know. And I've talked to him. And then, you know what, Sean? Sean, what was your response to me when I was like, dude, I've. I put so much into this, like a girl, I'm like, John, I put so much into this relationship. I feel like I don't get much back. Like, what's the story? You hardly ever talk to me. And what did you say to me, Sean? Um, I mean, I don't know what answer you're looking for, but probably, um, like I talk to you more than I talk to anybody else. That's exactly what he said. Man. Well, what do you do with that? You believe him? Yeah. No, I stayed with him. Just, I did it for the kids. I stayed with Sean for the kids. But the thing is, is 
So he sends me this text out of nowhere. We weren't talking about it. Mm-hmm. There was no reason for it. I didn't ask an opinion about it. It was the end of the day. I look down and there's a text from Sean and he's all, man, fuck Steve Miller's band. <laughs> the Steve Miller band. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it was just like that. Out of the blue. Man, fuck Steve Miller band. What's up with Steve Miller band? So listen, so I call him up. I go, because I thought maybe Steve <laughs> Miller had said all lives matter or something. Like I could kind of see them doing that maybe, you know, like just because it's like some Southern mute, Southern rock in there a little bit. So I thought maybe they'd said something racist. So I call him up. I go, hey man, what's going on? Did they, are they racist? Did they say all lives matter? What happened? Mm-hmm. And Sean, what did you tell me? I said that uh, they feel inauthentic to me or they did feel inauthentic to me. The Steve Miller band. Yeah. Unauthentic to you. Yeah. So wasn't Steve Miller involved in some cult thing? Were they? Because of this song. He's mad at the Steve Miller band for this song. My Trump City? Macho City. Welcome to the entertainment. Here now. Look, I can see Steve trying to understand what's going on here. Yo, what's up, Two Metal Metal? What's up, A5150 Mexican John? Okay, but where are we going? Okay, so yeah, I mean, I feel like Macho City is Steve Miller's terrible excuse for like some sort of like hybrid disco track. Like, and then I and I felt like they had they had like a southern rock song, they had some psychedelic rock songs. They just didn't know who they were sort of in a certain sense. And that they were trying to like <laughs> make a broad appeal. They weren't really rooted in anything specific. But that's the Sean hates the anything that I, that's inauthentic. Inauthentic. Yeah. inauthentic yeah. But you know what's funny? So Sean, so I call him up. Like listen, Steve. Listen, think about Sean and how much we've worked with Sean, right? Mm. Mm. Okay, and then think about how there's this whole world of analysis that you and I are not privy to, uh-huh. right? We don't know anything. Uh-huh. And then all of a sudden he shoots out in a kind of almost, it's, it's a little bit, you know, uh, autistic in a way or, or Tourette's-y. Fuck Steve Miller band. Like no context, yeah, no anything. Just pops out. And then you talk to him and you go, why? And then he plays a track and he's like, listen, that sounds like phony disco. <laughs> what the fuck? Yeah. So I talked to him. What is this guy up to when we're not with him? Right. He's at home just getting crazy over the Steve Miller band. He's probably like, fucking reloading and loading his gun, <laughs> pacing back and forth. <laughs> Sean, how does it manifest? Look at now he's starting Sketching to Sketching out blueprints and notes and fucking right. he, if you look strategies. Right. If you looked on his basement wall, there would be like all these different albums, right? Albums with like red lines and streaks and connections made that only he understands. And newspaper clippings. Right. He's like all, the, all of his family members. Right. He's he's addresses. like the he's like the music version of the Unabomber. The Unabomber. He's just like down there like Ted Theodore Kaczynski or whatever his name is. Like sitting there drawing out music notes and fucking he's like Steve Miliband, they're not real. The fuck is that? He's gonna pick up where uh, Charles Manson left off, so, cleaning so, up the music industry. So then I told Sean, and I, listen, this is an important thing too, because if people don't know, that's the worst song I've ever heard by the Steve Miller Band. But they're also known for this song. Wait, not that one. This one. 
Soul. Yeah. Right? Space Cowboy. Yep. Da 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 Some call me the gangster of love. What do you do with that? What do you do with that? What do you do with that? You know what you do with that? You have fun. That's a fun song. And I told Sean, I said, listen, I understand what you're saying. There's something generic about the Steve Miller band. Yeah. Right? The it's na- like every song they sing, it's like a smile is on your face. Right. Right. And so, and, and they're so... You know gen- what I mean? Look at, look at Steve. They're a generic. Steve Miller's a generic okay. Yeah, name. I think generic is the term. But, but, but it sounds like he got really offended by generic. Well, he, that he, was the generic that offended Sean. But this is what I'm trying to say is what I tried to, and Sean actually agreed with me after a, a big fucking discussion we had, the intricacies. But we went through all the various songs, right? Big old Jet Airliner, fucking Jungle Love, Jungle Love, fucking. This is what I. This is this is where I can communicate with Sean. You know, uh, all of those um, uh, fly like an eagle, right? And there is an aspect of the Steve Miller band. You're like, what the fuck is he talking about? Like, time keeps on slipping, slipping, slipping. Like, what? Like, okay. What does that have to do with the eagle? I don't know what he's talking about. But at the end of it, you still wind up enjoying it. It's still fun. It's a yeah. vibe. It's a vibe music for smoking pot or hanging out. It's vibe. And this is why. There's a space for that. I, I can admit that. This is why one of Steve Miller's songs could even be utilized for something like Space Jam. I'm not saying Space Jam's a great film. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying. Mm. Steve Miller figured out some kind of sweet spot, some kind of commercial sweet spot. He hit it. And he did it effectively. Why? Because we're still singing those songs. Mm-hmm. So I was telling Sean, I'm like, there's something fun about it. There's something easy to digest about it. It's the, it's the grilled cheese sandwich in the cafeteria. Okay. Right? All right. I'll buy that. And it's very frat house, though. Right. It is. Um, so anyway, so that's just to kind of like give you some insight to the, to the listener. You no, know, because uh, the listeners don't know. So the listeners know, as Lepke always says. So the listeners know. If anyone wants to understand Sean, that this might, I don't know if it explains anything, but this is another piece to the Sean puzzle. By the way, as we're doing this, um, that's right. B.S. Schwartz says the Joker, all time classic. Junior 9002, six side, West Side says, keep up the good work, fellas. Love the show, West West. Um, uh, this is what I want to ask uh, one of our guys, I can't remember his name. Kema Adrian Cortez says, where does Sean stand on the idea of corn dogs? Fucking love corn dogs. Corn dogs, American classic. Although, you know what? <laughs> here's, a, here's something that I've been trying to figure out. Go ahead. How the fuck can I put, uh, how can I suspend chili to put a corn dog batter around it to make like cornbread muffin mm. with like chili in the middle? Wow. What do you think about that, Steve? That's interesting. Like a crusty cornbread on the outside with but chili in the middle. Dogs. Yeah. With the they chili. Got, I think there's something like that made. Is there? there? I think so. I want to try that. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I do. Right. I want to try that. All right. All right. There you go. Um, we it's, it was a quick insight into Sean. I just wanted to start this conversation off with that. I, I, Sean brought Sean listen Sean brought a slide whistle which I'm not exactly I don't I don't know 
Does any of this adding up to you, Steve? Uh, what's going on? How long would Sean last in prison, Steve? Uh, I don't know. Like he might last actually a long time in prison. Really? He might. Because? He's a sharp guy. He is sharp. He is he, smart. Yeah, he is. He knows. He knows. He keeps it. He, he would keep to himself a little bit. I keep the peace. What would keep be your strategy peace. in prison, Sean? Um, what would be my strategy? That's a good question. Uh, I'd probably just ask a lot of advice from peace, from people. Yeah. To maybe try to find somebody I could. Dude, I don't know. Because uh, I definitely wouldn't want to hang with the Aryan Brotherhood. Oh, yeah. Would I, would I have to? You have to. Uh, you'd, yeah, you'd have to run with somebody white. Who else is there besides the Aryan Brotherhood in well, prison there is to an hang? Aryan Brotherhood. The Aryan Brotherhood is. Whatever. It's something that's not out there. But uh, I think like. The woods. Or like the white. Yeah, the white. The pecker car. woods. Yeah, I mean like the woods and. Dude, you imagine Sean being stuck with the woods? You imagine how many like lies Sean would have to say just to keep the peace? Like when they're like, "Yeah, we ain't fucking with none of that black music." And Sean would be like, "Yeah, that's right. I hate black. I love Woody Guthrie. I love Steve Miller Band. We ain't listen to any of that crazy black music, yeah, right, Sean? Sean Isn't that just, right, Blue Eyes?" John would just would not be saying a whole bunch. He'd just be going with the role. <laughs> right, Sean would be like, "Oh yeah. yeah, I ain't trying to get in it, but I know I can't stay out of it." You know? <laughs> <laughs> dude yeah. that would be a great skit call me if you need me <laughs> that would be a great skit we should we should we should do a show around sean getting pulled into prison and like oh, have him having to choose you getting uh getting the game from somebody that's like you know deep in the mix like don't even look over there sean right of course not <laughs> of course i won't look over there you know sean what kind of music you listen to sean i uh, just whatever's on the radio <laughs> <laughs> oh it's so good dude by the way people are telling me that they want a whole episode where lepke prepares sean for prison mm. we should have that that'd be amazing right yeah we should have lepke walk through and help sean and we, maybe we should even tell lepke that sean actually got busted for tax evasion and he's got to go to prison and turn myself in he's got to turn yeah. himself in and lepke needs to prepare him on how to get ready for prison and, and how to suit up with the woods how to make a shank I, every, I mean we can't we can't make it too obvious wait, right? that, wait we're gonna have to have sean fall on a state case though because lefty's gonna be like i don't know what federal prison's like i've only been upstate right. so it's gonna have to be a state case that he's got to go in on right he stole cable what, what yeah, would be what yeah, would, yeah. he no. was stealing he walked out of a store with some hard luck fucking equipment and he didn't pay for all of it he what tried would, to get over and he got arrested. And he actually did the same shit no. in Northern California. <laughs> it's not his first offense. That's what we tell everybody. We go, he actually used to do this shit. We thought he stopped doing this. No, yeah. <laughs> Turns we'll out he got busted again. And we'll tell Lepke that all the all the all the equipment that we've been using up to this point is fucking hot. It's He's stolen. stolen, totally stolen. Sean's been busted. Um and there's a good chance. It's not for sure yet. Yeah. Right? His chance. lawyer, I, I'm talking to his attorney and we're working on it, but there's a chance he's going to go to state prison. Right. And, and we need you. If the other six county priors catch up to this, yeah. he's done. Right. They want he's wanted six other counties we have for this same shit. We should have Lepke come down. We should have Lepke come down and pretend like we're starting a show on something else. 
mm-hmm. right? Like we're doing a different show, and then have Sean, you know, just a little uh, under the under the weather, a little blue. Mm-hmm. You know, something's wrong with Sean, and I could ask him like, "Hey, man, I told you, just let it go." <laughs> <laughs> we gotta do the show man just shake it off yeah, bro it's gonna be all, you're not even gonna have a problem yeah. and then slowly Sean can reveal it's only 18 months dude and for good time <laughs> you're probably only gonna do a year yeah right up in Ironwood your or kid, something your, your, your girl's gonna be able to bring your kid up to see you yeah besides she doesn't even <laughs> like being with you now so it's yeah, it's gonna it's be like easier break. right it's like she can go to India now and then and then as we're talking about it, then Sean can, you can genuinely be like, guys, what I'm really scared about is I don't know what to do. I've been listening to Sean. Fuck. I, I, I'm not, I'm not a, a, a down for the white people kind of guy, but now I'm going to be up in there. I need help. I need some advice. Like, Lepke, how am I going to survive this? How do I survive this intact? I don't want to lose my butthole, Lepke. How do I survive and tell? <laughs> how do I, I don't want to lose my butthole, Lepke? What do I, I got to do? Keep my cherry. Right. Lepke, tell me how to make that Pruno. Lepke, give me, maybe Pruno will save me. You know, we, and let's just, let's try to make it seem like an actual thing and then like let, let Lepke do what he loves best, which yeah. is give advice. Yeah. And do I need to take, he's going to be like, and should I take something into jail with me? Right. And Lepke's going to convince him, yeah, you're going to bring a can of fucking tobacco. <laughs> We're gonna fit it in your rear end. It's gonna make you money there so that you have money to survive. Let's have no no no. What we could do is while we're talking about it, Sean why as we as Lepke's giving him advice, go Sean could go, listen, I got an idea on how to uh, like one of the things I thought is maybe I could bring some tobacco. And then Lepke would be like, Yeah, yeah it's a good yeah, idea. Yeah. But then we'll have Sean will pull out a real fat log. <laughs> Right with some like, Vaseline you guys on it. Help me get this in there. <laughs> I've been trying to get this in, Lepke. Yeah. won't. How do I get this down and watch Lepke my just? My butt's <laughs> saying no. My mind's telling me yes, but my butt's telling and me Lepke no. And Lepke could be like, "Hey, you ain't ever gonna get that in that little. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You're yeah. gonna have to make it longer than it is wider." <laughs> Dude, people are saying Lepke's five steps on how to make it through a year in prison. Yeah. Uh, Big Lep would go off with knowledge would be great to the listeners are loving this idea now let's, let's see if we can pull this up see if we could get Lepke to actually maybe believe that Sean there's a chance Sean might go to prison yeah, yeah, and he yeah, needs yeah. to help school a young dude yeah that's a good idea right um I don't even know what that has that doesn't have anything to do with uh pimps and pushers pimps and pushers uh, I'm gonna well maybe not Pimps, but I mean, pushing, pushing. <laughs> Lepke, but Lepke knows something about some pimps and some pushers. Does he? <laughs> yeah, but he was running some game out of the Econo Lodge, yeah. wasn't he? Wasn't that what he was doing? Yeah, was oh, a little room upstairs and a room over here. Yeah, a couple of O's running around at some point in time for him. Did Dabbled he have a, a little bit? A, a stable? I don't know about a stable, but you know, you know. You know, <laughs> guys from Hollywood, you know what I'm saying? All right, dudes. All right, late. Well, I got to leave these guys so I can focus. Uh, well, all right. So pimps and pushers. I think the reason why we're bringing it up is because I read the Slim, the Iceberg Slim story. Yes. Front to back. And if you listeners are listening to this show, you may want to pause it and look up Iceberg Slim. Who doesn't, by this point, know about Iceberg Slim? I think there's a lot of young people that don't know. 
All right. There's a young rapper out that calls himself Iceberg Slim. Is it really? Yeah. Name, but but that guy is not Iceberg Slim. He's naming himself after Iceberg Slim. And if anybody wants to know the truth, mm-hmm. you really want to know the fucking truth. Mm. Iceberg Slim is so influential on hip hop culture, street culture, up to a point. And most people don't even rec- realize just how influential this guy was. Mm-hmm. Iceberg Slim was a huge influence on Chris Rock. Mm-hmm. Chris Rock talks about it, and then Chris Rock, whenever he wraps up a movie, he gives a copy of Ice Slim, Iceberg Slim's book to everybody on the set. Every movie, every time. Really? Think about that. <clears throat> it's interesting. He's so influential. Iceberg Slim is so influential that Ice-T and Ice Cube named themselves after Iceberg Slim. Is that right? Yeah. That's why Ice Cube is called Ice Cube, and that's why Ice-T is called Ice-T is because of Iceberg Slim. Hmm. That's where they got it. And they read his books. They read his books. And Ice-T read his books, and one of his first original raps uh, was based on uh, Iceberg Slim's um, style of writing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Iceberg Slim's style of confessional writing about street life, mm-hmm. bringing this, this American ghetto street life to, to the mainstream, and also highlighting the language. And for the most part, the concept of the African-American pimp, as we know it, mm-hmm. Flavor Flav, all these different styles that are wild and flashy and crazy and all these different things, all derive are legacies attached to the original, original OG pimp in America, in entertainment, Iceberg Slim. And anybody right now can go on Amazon and pull down that book. And I fucking dare you, I double dog dare you mm. to get that book because that book is fan-fucking-tastic. Mm. It's maybe one of the best books I've ever read. Wow. Written by a four-time convict. <clears throat> Ex-pimp, pimped for 40 years in the game, mm. right? Became an author. Mm. Think about that. Think about that. And you got to think about, he takes you all the way through the pimp game. He explains the psychology of how to have a stable of women, what you have to do. He talks about his early history. How did he even get started in this game? When he was in prison, he became very clear on how he became a pimp because he read so much about psychology in prison. Freud, all of them, Jung, Carl Jung, all that stuff, right? And it set him up perfectly to eventually write these series of books, which eventually became very important uh, in uh, the black experience movement where all these other authors came forward. Uh, one that you've mentioned on the show, uh, Donald Goins. Yes. Who's Donald Goins? Donald Goins was uh, a dope fiend uh, that was involved in the lifestyle and the street life heavily, deep in it, and traveled in those circles of, of dope dealers and pimps and um, and became a huge author as well. Started right. writing his own books. And, and he was published by Holloway as well. Holloway is a publishing house that mm-hmm. took a chance on Iceberg Slim. Right. And they took a chance on Donald Goins. And I think he might have published 12, 12 different books with them. 
There was a point at which no, Don- no professional, uh, no, uh, no edu- formal Training, education, right. none of that. He didn't go to he, like Columbia. Got, but very s- much like Iceberg Slim, Donald Goins. I think Iceberg Slim had more of a a pimp style in a way, like about himself and yeah. what he did. Yeah. Donald Goins is a dope fiend, right? So he has a different angle angle of how he's telling it, but they're both talking about um, occurrences in the streets, and they were able to, I think, you know. Both of them tell these stories in such color and amazing. So I, but Iceberg Slim, you hear Iceberg Slim in the beginning of Donald Goins' books. That's who inspired him, right? To write. That's who he was reading before he started writing his own, right? Uh, and so he inspired all these folks. So yes. Ice T, right? Like his, his, there's a, there's one of his raps, Six in the Morning, mm-hmm. right? Ice T's that was inspired by the style in which Iceberg Slim was able to convey in a specialized like language, but an immediate aspect to street life, what it was like to be a pimp. And here's a, here's, here's this, a little bit of that song. If you, if in case some of you, some of the Mr. and Mrs. Earbuds might be so young, they might not have ever heard this version of Ice-T. Six in the morning, police at my door. Fresh Shadita squeak across the bathroom floor. Out my back window, I my escape. Didn't even get a chance to grab my old school tape. Mad with no music, but happy cause free. And the streets to a player is the place to be. Got a knot in my pocket, weighing at least a grand. Gold on my neck, my pistol's close in hand. I'm a self-made monster of the city streets. Remotely controlled by hard hip-hop beats. But just Sean, what do you, from your music experience, expertise, the kind of mind that hates on the Steve Miller band, what do you hear there with um, that early version of Ice-T's music? Uh, creativity and just amazing shit. I love that. I but, think that's like one of the first West Coast gangster yeah, rap, rap songs. Yeah. yeah. You can kind this of, song is the inspiration for for Boys in the Hood. Boys in the Hood. You can hear it, right? Yep. Same. Same type of ending. Same type of flow. Yeah, you can hear it in the flow, right? Yeah. Ice T's flow. You can it's the beat. The beat is the same. It's just the track behind try it. Try to same exact fucking cadence. Yep. But like, how stripped down is that beat? I mean, that beat is like, look at... Listen, I know, that's how, a sign of the times. Because at that time, that was... There's like orchestra so hits. That's like a product of like the technology that was available at the time. What was like, available at that time? Oh, SP-1200 or something yeah. like that. You yeah. think that's what that is? Probably. Might not even have been that advanced. Probably not. Yeah. MP-60. This MP6. thing sounds like um, You think it's like an SP-1200? No, let's see I think this is even before that That almost sounds like All of those sounds came on the, a giant keyboard Like it's all coming from one single keyboard That they pre-programmed Like it doesn't sound Like no, a bunch of sounds like a four track Listen to that bass drum's not even There's no bass line. You know what? Let's compare that to uh, Boys in the Hood. What do you think about that? So, yeah, it wasn't the SP-1200 because the SP-1200 came out in 87. 
and six in the morning came out in '86. So it came out before that. Yeah. So it wasn't. Listen to how different this sounds. But the similarities, but the differences. Yep. It's the bit. It's the beat. It's the drum beat. Right. It's a lot. It's sorry. Dr. Dre shits on that six in the morning beat, though. What do you mean by that? Sp- spell that out. I just mean that there's way the production is way better. Right, right. This is six mm. in the morning. Six, six in the morning. Right. It's stripped down, so it's early. But you're right. So that might be the first sort of gangster West Coast gangster rap. Right. Anyway, that was inspired by Iceberg Slim. So without further ado. Right. Yes. Let's get a sense of um, Iceberg Slim's writing style. You got to remember, it's one thing to put it in a beat that you can listen to and it's easy to access. Think about trying to put the street game into a book, mm. right? And how much you would have to be able, not easy. be able to write to kind of like convey. Uh, I don't let, you know, maybe the best way to do this would be to. Uh, give you uh, they what they do is they give you a little taste at the front audio taste no they give you like a like a cut in at the height of his pimping right Iceberg Slim's pimp, pimping his real name was Robert Beck mm-hmm. and he actually went by Slim Cavanaugh when he wrote this book Iceberg Slim he changed his name to Iceberg Slim in order and everyone else's name in order to respect the fact that all the crimes and shit that they went they did he wasn't really going to tell on anybody so he does a tell all with different names in order to protect people so nobody goes to jail so iceberg slim opens it up with dawn was breaking as the big hog scooted through the streets my five whores were chattering like drunk magpies i smelled the stink that only a street whore has after a long busy night the inside of my nose was raw. It happens Damn. when you're a pig for snorting cocaine. My nose was on fire and the stink of those whores and the gangster they were smoking. Back then, and this we're talking about 1940s, gangster was the word they used for weed. They called it gangster smoking. You probably knew that, Steve. I didn't know that. Mm. They were smoking. Seemed, my nose was on fire and the stink of those whores and the gangster they were smoking seemed like invisible mm. knives scraping to the root of my brain. I was in an evil, dangerous mood, despite that pile of scratch crammed into the glove compartment. God damn it, has one of you bitches shit on herself or something? (laughs) I bellowed as I flipped the long window toward me. For a long moment, there was silence. Then Rachel, my bottom whore, cracked in a pleasing-ass kissing voice. Daddy, baby, that ain't no shit you smell. We've been turning all night and ain't no bathrooms in those tricks cars we've been flipping out of. Daddy, we sure been humping for you, and what you smell is our nasty whore asses. That's how the book opens. <laughs> Damn. Right? I mean, it doesn't get much more clear than that. And uh, do you guys know what a bottom whore is? If you're low down, that's your, your back that's end. That's your main your, bitch, right? That's your heel of your, the heel of your crew whore. That's it. That, the bottom bitch, and he goes through this whole thing and explains what the bottom bitch is for and how she operates towards the other women, mm. right? And she's going to be the one, right, that you depend on to keep the other ones competing with her and helping that, her keep them in line a little bit, keep them tethered to the system. Because you got to think about it. 
You mean we really have to think about it. I mean, I'll ask you, Steve, how hard do you think it would be to keep control of six criminal-minded women so that they actually have sex with strangers in order Mm. to give you the money? How much mental bullshit do you got to go through to deal with that? A lot. More than I know about. Dude, he said, uh, he, he, this whole book, right? I mean, the vast majority of it is all about the mental games you got to play to deal with a criminal-minded woman to keep her loyal to you and that weird zone you got to be mean and loving at different intervals in order to keep this woman doing whatever it is that you tell her to do. And a lot of it is get out on the street and fucking go in a car with a stranger and fuck him. I mean, that's, I mean, that's asking a lot of somebody. And one of the things that's cool from the book is that uh, Iceberg Slim said that one of the older pimps told him that a pimp ain't nothing but a whore who reversed the whore game on whores. He's like, the way the whore approaches a trick, I mean, remember when we had Queens of the Underground on here and uh, her friend, whatever her name was? Yeah. Remember how their, their, their attitude towards tricks, like hit a trick with a stick mm-hmm. and tricks ain't shit and your daddy pays me. They have a kind of a disdain for the men who want to fuck them, mm-hmm. right? They got a disdain and they're going to give them money for the same. So that attitude, the pimp has to maintain with the horse. He has to disdain them. Like some of the things that you have to do in order for the whore to have respect for you is they say, and this is, and Iceberg Slim says that when he went to prison the first time, there's a, there's, there's, there's a, like a, a lore, a methodology, a pimp methodology that the guy who told it to him said it goes all the way back to slave days. Mm. Right. He said that one of the things is you can't ever, Sleep with your whores too much. And you never sleep with a whore until she gives you money. If you sleep with a whore without getting money, then you're basically being suckered by her. And when a whore is able to have sex with you without having to pay you for it or without having to give you something for it, they call that getting georgia mm. When you're getting georgia the, the, the Georgia is when you are taken advantage of by a woman. When a man is sexually taken advantage of by a woman at this time in the 30s and 40s, the African-American community had a term for it, and it's called getting Georgia. Now, I want really, think about that in light of today's time. Mm. Think about that. Think about that. I'm not saying women were empowered at all. I'm not saying that. But I am saying it's a more complex story than people think because if in the 30s and the 40s there was a term for a guy who was a sucker— because a woman was able to use her sex to take advantage of him. That shows that the power differential in that relationship is that the woman's got more power than the man. Mm. Does that sound rational to you? Does that make sense? No. Interesting. Sean, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's been going on forever. Which is what? I mean, you know, women have always... Take, I would say taking advantage of of the desire that a man has, right? Right. That I mean, how sense. strong is that desire? 
I mean, it's deep in us. Wars. Right. Wars, exactly. People have been wiped out. Civilizations behind that. Isn't it all behind that? I don't know, but Helen of Troy, the Trojan War, Mm -hmm. is based on the kidnapping of Helen of Troy and the trying to get her back. That was that whole war was based on a woman. But let me ask you this, Steve. You said no. Like, so... How does this relate to you? Do you have a stance of like, look, I don't care how fine a woman is, I am not gonna get, you know, all head over heels and let her take advantage of me. <laughs> look at that. Yeah, I, I think I have that. I, yeah, I think so. I believe that. I believe like, I think there's a lot of suckers out there. Right. So that so what I'm saying is is that at so now when you when you look and I'm not saying there isn't some I'm not listen there is something to the me too movement there's definitely uh-huh. but I'm also saying that along with that there's this other layer of politics between the sexes which there are some guys that become suckers for women because they want what women have so bad they're so attractive they're willing to do anything turn out their pockets and in return to that there's some guys that know that dynamic and have made a vow to not be that guy. Right. I'm not going to be a sucker. And I think part of that comes from the Iceberg Slim book of what he recounts of being Georgia and all this other stuff. I'm not going to let a woman turn me out. I think, it's, I think it's even one more than that. And I don't know where the attitude comes from, but like, if you're somebody like me, or you come from where I come from, mm-hmm. your your natural kind of, I would say, for a big majority of my life, maybe still in many ways, is like I'm gonna get over. I get over. I don't get over on like people don't get over on me. Right. I've got the drop. I'm the one who gets over. You're not I'm the taking, sucker. Uh-uh. I'm taking, you know, somebody else is going to be the sucker. I'm not. And then when a guy like me is uh, uh, either approach or knows exactly what what the game's about. Yeah. I'm not going for that. You get what I'm saying? Now, there ain't a man or a woman that's going to get over on me. If anything, I'm going to get over on you. So I don't know. For a guy like me or guys like me. That would be the ultimate sign of failure, weakness of... Right. But guys, I mean, people have for love or for women, they've, they've, some guys have given it all up. There's plenty. Giving it all up for a woman. Giving it all up. And and then you see it and you're like, okay, I get it, but I'm I'm not going to be the one. I'm not going out like that. Right. You're not going to rob me. Right. There was a woman in here that... Finesse me, work me, like all that shit doesn't happen to certain guys. Because they're the guys that are like, if anybody's going to get worked, I'm going to do the working. Right. Right? Get that? Right. Well, so that's that's the pimp. That is the pimp's ethos in in Iceberg Slim's, what he, his tutelage, what he learned in his pedigree, what he learned, that was his ethos. I'm not getting worked. I'm working them. But... The Iceberg Slim story starts with him getting worked by women. Mm-hmm. That's where it starts. That's how he knew that he didn't like it. 
And experience it. The first chapter of his book is called Torn from the Nest. And that book, and the first sentence in that book, in Iceberg Slim's book, the very first sentence in that first chapter is about how his female babysitter, who he calls Maude, was forcing him at three years old to eat her out. Getting, Damn. Getting off on his face. Damn. And his mom didn't know. His mom had to work long hours, right? When he was how old? Like three. This is 1921. Damn. She could have smothered the kid. Three. He said he almost said. Her name was Maude, and she Georgied, she Georgied me. <laughs> she Georgied me. I was only three years old. Mama told me about it. And, I, and always when she did it, her rage and indignation would be as strong and as emotional, perhaps, as the time that she had surprised Maude. Panting and moaning at the point of orgasm with my tiny head wedged between her ebony thighs. Her massive hands vice-like around my head. So his first paragraph is, I was three. There was my babysitter forcing me to go down on her. I mean, he probably doesn't know what he's doing. And his mom comes home and catches it, catches her in the act. He's, Iceberg Slim says, I have tried through the years to remember her face, but all I can remember is the funky ritual. I vaguely remember, not her words, but her excitement when we were alone. I remember more vividly the moist, odorous darkness and the bristle-like hairs tickling my face. And most vividly, I can remember my panic when in the wild moment of her climax, she would savagely jerk my head even tighter into her hairy maw. Think about that. Some people say <laughs> that's when the pimp was born. Yeah, it sounds like it. <laughs> Some people would say. The next, I mean, so we're talking 1921, right? Now, now, kind of currently, you kind of feel like, oh, well, women haven't started taking advantage of boys mm -hmm. until like the last 15 years when all these like middle school teachers and all this other mm -hmm. stuff take running around with these younger guys but does that surprise you at all steve like do, i was a little bit surprised that in 1921 some woman was forcing this kid to eat her out that's a little crazy to me i think it was going on more than we think i think i think it was going on more than thinking i think like uh, even when you you know when you when you watch that documentary on this last woman that went to got convicted for 25 years for fucking with that kid in high school yeah even the prosecutors like i think that in this country we are kind of trained or shown to believe that men uh take advantage or they're the only ones that can pursue yeah uh children and uh we don't want to believe that women do it too but they do sean why would <clears throat> we not want to believe that women do it too but they do what would be the reason America would turn a blind eye to that? I think we tend to think of women as like pure and uh, there's a, uh, a concept that, you know, the man protects the woman and that sort of thing falls into these gender roles and that kind of lives outside of this. I was only 16 and I was with a 32-year-old woman when I was 16. I was with a 30-year-old woman when I was 15. There you go. There, and I was thinking about it like, well, let me. Sean's the one that's got a boy. Sean, how old's your boy? He's four. Okay, so let's say your boy is 
15, 11 years from now. Yeah. And a 30-year-old woman was coming around and wanting to fuck with him. Picking him up. Yeah. Picking him up in a car and yeah. taking him out? Yeah. I mean, what would you think of if a 30-year-old woman had a t- a gotten... First of all, if she picked him up, would you think anything was weird about that? Uh, in what role? Let's say she's his teacher. Let's say it's a teacher and the teacher's taking an interest in him and she's like, yeah, it's kind of weird. I mean, does she pick up all the kids? Would you feel, and let's say that you found out that she was having a full, I mean, a full sexual relationship with, with him. Yeah. And and he was real happy about it too. Yeah. Maybe he was happy about it. How would you, you as a father, what would, what would you really think about or what would you be, your concerns be? My, that he doesn't understand the full, um, He's just not, he's only 15. He's not, he's not fully capable of understanding like the repercussions of this, I guess. Yeah. In some, in a certain are you going to let, are you going to let you, you nah, let son carry on with no. it? What if he, yeah. What if your son's like, dad, it's cool, man. You know what's weird is like, I think about myself and I'd be like, yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 But, Cause I was real happy about the situation, <laughs> the situation I had going on. Right. I was driving my little moped up to Brentwood. As fast as that fucker would go, man. She was a fucking nurse at Cedar Sinai. She had drove a new. She had a nice pad. It was all. I was fucking. I couldn't be happier. Right. I couldn't have landed a better piece of ass for myself at sixteen. Sure. I was killing it, going out to dinner and shit, driving her fucking sports car around. What did you think? Of, what do you? I thought not, I was the man. Are you kidding what me? What do you think about it now? I think it's great. Do you think she played you? She got what she wanted. I got what I wanted. Right, but did you did you think you were really a man, or do you look yeah, back now? And, I was, I was, I thought I was the one running the show. I thought but I was, she, really but she was over. right. She was absolutely. Now that we're talking about this, because she could just put a few little things in front of me, and and I'd be excited about it because I couldn't get to that. Where was she living? Brentwood. She lived in Brentwood up on Barrington. She'd always have some good weed. How did she? Some alcohol. How did she? How did you meet her? She was the nurse. Of my my sister had had a surgery, and she was the nurse, and she was helping her when we were there. And then she would come by the apartment when my sister was healing, uh-huh. and she'd come by, and we all like kind of became friends. And she became a friend of the families, like Michael Jackson. Started coming over for like Thanksgiving, and she didn't have a lot of family here, and. You know, and she then then there was a my mom had a dinner party, and then it was my sister's birthday, and she started getting invited to these little functions. That's so weird. And, and then coming me, around, and then uh, when did you know that she, something was more was going to go down? She was just always real nice to me, and always wanted to talk to me and stuff. And I remember one night it was late; everybody had been drinking. Yeah, I wasn't supposed to be drinking, but I was stealing. Of drinks. course. And my mom was like, my mom would often ask me, hey, walk so-and-so to her car. You know, if it was like a... Like as a man. Uh, yeah, as a man. You right, know, friend, protecting. You know, I yeah. was, yeah. Stephen walked. And so I remember that night, it was it was late. must have been around, I don't know, midnight You were already fantasizing. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, fucking, my mom was like, will you walk Gina? Can you walk Gina to the car? And I'm like, oh, yeah. And I was a little bit buzzed. And, or walking, and she like kind of like grabbed my hand, like kind of as like a joke, pulled me in like next to her, right? Yeah. And I don't know what happened. I got some kind of feeling, and I just kind of like got to her car and just leaned in, 
Just took a chance. Yeah. And it was on. We were making out and this and that. Did and she have any... Here's my number and you need to call me and let's hang out and boom. Did she have any apprehension? Like- she like, tried to act like she did. Oh my God, I can't believe... You know, after we made out for fucking five minutes, she's like, oh my God, what if your mother... Oh, I can't believe I'm doing it. But it was all just jargon. It was jargon. She knew exactly what she was doing as a fucking... What? Because I had a, so in my situation, mm-hmm. the when I knew that it was on was when she decided to give me a massage. Oh she, shit! That's like way advanced. She decided to give me a massage, and she let certain things brush certain things. Yeah, and yeah, that's when sure. I knew. I didn't know how. But that's when I knew that a door had been opened. Yeah. And a lot, for a very long time, I, th- I thought I was in control too. Mm-hmm. Like I thought, oh. And then now later, now really looking at it, I realized, oh, I might not even have been the only one. Mm-hmm. I, 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 at one time, there was a, in my mind a thinking that like, maybe there's something special about me that crossed this barrier. Right. Right. Of course. But now looking back on it, like when they talk about grooming, like the little things that go on, sure, I could see that that's that was going on. I don't know what it was, what is like for you, but once I drove over to this chick's house, yeah, right, yeah, I get to her house on a weekend night, whatever, to come hang out with her, and she's like, "Oh, make a drink while I finish getting ready." So yeah. now I've got. You right, know, a- access to the bar. Yeah, she's talking to me like I'm an adult. Right, right. So I make a drink. I make her a drink. Right, right. And she's like, she's like, I don't know to make her a drink. She tells me, make me a drink. Right, right. you that's, know. So that's that's how inexperienced you are. Right. So I'm learning, like, all right, but I'm being treated like an adult. Right. Right. She's like, roll a joint, or maybe I brought some. She's like, yeah, roll a joint. Duh, duh. And then it's like, all right, we're gonna go to dinner, and she's like, th- hands me the keys. Right. Ask me if I want to drive. You're driving. Right. Right. Yeah. So I drive her sports car. And we go to the restaurant. And she's like, you know, she she tells the guy, give me the ticket. Hands me the ticket. Just hold on to that. You know what I'm saying? I'm totally kind of inexperienced with it, right? Right. And uh, you know, walking in with this older woman, and it's like I'm getting like all these looks, and I think I'm right. cool, like, and then going back over there, and so it's like. I'm a kid and I'm getting to go over and engage with this woman and in her house, I'm getting treated like an adult. I can drink, I can smoke, I can do, you know? So all she was doing was just putting out all the little things for me to jump all over. Right. But for me, those were big. So It was first time on some of that yeah. shit. Same thing here. Uh, I, I had access to alcohol. I was, I, I mean, she'd buy it. Right. She, t- she did, what do you want? And I and I ordered cigars and alcohol. There you go. And no problem. No problem. Hey, let me ask you a question. What do you think then is her psychology? Like, what is she really? I mean, yes, a younger man has a hard dick. We all know that, and is very eager, mm-hmm. right? But what is the psychology of the woman? Do you think is what's the pleasure or the enjoyment of having? She's the one. I mean, what do you think it is? She can have any guy. I mean, most women can have pretty much any guy they want they could even find an of age guy who's got zero experience mm-hmm. right there's plenty of those walking around look at schmitty 
But the point is, what is what is it for her? I mean, she knows that somebody's the man is underage, not a man. She knows that she's laying these things out. What is the what is the what is being fulfilled for her? Is it safety? I don't know. I I I think that it goes a little bit deeper than that Go actually. Ahead. And yeah. I think that it goes into kind of like you if my experience is that the more I examined and over time took a look at that experience, yeah. She for one, a woman that's going to take a guy like me on and start seeing me. Yeah. At my age, my experience, who I am and who she is, I'm not going to question her on anything. I'm not going to push her to do more or better. Right. She's way above me. Like She has her shit. And she knows that that's how it looks in the relationship. I'm not going to question. You're just I'm grateful to be there. Exactly. And I think that there's a psychology on somebody like that. Because when I look back on it, she was kind of immature. Right. She didn't want anybody that's going to... Force her to grow up. Force her to grow up. It's exactly right. Real easy. And she also understood these things are probably exciting to him. Booze and driving my car and, you know, like he's just excited just to be along for the ride. And yeah. And so then that translates into like... But you know what? In that analysis, I agree with the analysis, but in that analysis... That sets you. That sets her thinking up mm-hmm. to think of you as a partner that's not going to question her or or push her. And at that time, wasn't I was getting Georgian, right? But what I'm saying is, is, is <sighs> I think there's even a more perverted enjoyment. Hmm. I think hmm. everything you said is true because in my situation, I see that too. Was it, it a control thing? Uh, it's definitely it, a it's definitely a control thing because there was there was even some sexual control in it, mm. right? But I'm thinking now also there's no way to slice it because when you look at the reverse in a guy situation, like 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 imagine we're telling this same story, but it's a 30 year old guy with a 16 year old girl. Mm-hmm. Just think about how your stomach changes just hearing it that way. You hear it, 30 year old woman with a 16 year old guy, it's not good. But but then you go, yeah, no, this 30-year-old guy was with this 16-year-old girl. And you start to get a, a queasy feeling like, oh, that ain't good. But then, right, you go, what is it? Why does a 30-year-old man want to deal? All the same reasons you said, which is like, well, he's, he's, he's not going to be questioned by a 16-year-old girl. She's got zero power over him at all. He can control the situation. But I also think that there's a perversion, there's an enjoyment to the fact that there's a perverted enjoyment to control, to the control, but also that it's completely prohibited. Mm. Like it's completely prohibited. This is not okay. Yeah. This is zero okay. Like this is another secret you got to keep. I, like, like there's a sexuality to certain prohibitions. Like there are some, a lot of affairs that, that people 100% have. 100% agree. People have affairs. Sometimes the affairs only last so long as you know it's bad. The minute that the marriage breaks up and you guys go, okay, now sure. you, then it falls apart. Cause right, of it, course. There was not excitement. There. Right. So I think for the older person, there is an excitement to, I'm doing something that I'm not supposed Forbid. to do. Totally prohibited. 
I am not. Especially a 30-year-old nurse with a 16-year-old kid from where you're from. Well, I definitely felt like the my vision of it was that I like whatever she thought she was running or getting over on. Yeah, like me bragging and and being able to be that guy mm-hmm. did a lot for me. Right. I felt like I had won all the ways around. I said the same thing, and it was pointed out to me that what if it's just that you have an inability or you're having difficulty seeing yourself victimized in that situation. Hmm. Cause, cause I have the same thing you have, which was well, the, I pursued it, I, and same thing. But that doesn't mean that you're not the victim. You're pursuing right, it because you right, don't know. Right, right, of course. But, but what that. I'm saying is the same thing with you. There is, this is what I I don't think is ever talked about in these sexual discussions. Mm-hmm. The victims oftentimes, right, in in these limited circumstances, the victims sometimes have a feeling of being special or unique or empowered and a lot of people part of the trauma comes from they enjoyed it mm-hmm. like when i was reading about richard ramirez and how uh the that teacher mccann mm-hmm. came over in your and i situation steve it's a little easier for us to absorb it because we're like yeah it's boy girl it's an older woman you know i was in that prime of when guys are trying to figure out how to get in there in any which way Mm-hmm. right it's a little easier to digest and so when we have pleasure associated with it it's not disruptive to, we don't think like oh, i should but even in the situations when i was reading about ramirez even the situations where the male teacher has come over and molested male students those guys said it felt good and even they enjoyed that even though in the normal circumstances they're not gay they're not you know, they don't really roll like that. They're not all about that. But the body does what the body does. Mm-hmm. And they and the part of their, their extra trauma is that they feel like I shouldn't have even enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. You and I don't have that because it's, mm-hmm. it's sort of in the right way, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it by society mm-hmm. standards. In any event, the only reason why I went down that was because I was like, man, I don't think we think about the perversion of women at all in this country. Like, I don't think we really think that they can be sexual predators or we even put them in that category as such, unless they do something so outlandish and, and then we think no. it's like a one-off. No. I'm just thinking about 1921 and this woman, for whatever reason, it's not even... Does, does he say if his mom beat, beat her ass or if anything happened? Uh, she fired... I don't, think they, I don't think the mom... I don't think she beat his... I don't know that she beat his, her ass. Mm. I don't know if his mom was a fighting or, or whatever but they moved out they killed they fired her and they moved out mm. um and his dad of course you know iceberg slim's dad doesn't take much interest in him mm. and or the mother his dad was like a gambling fool it was like just lost all, everything in gambling and whatever else and tried to convince iceberg slim's mom to leave iceberg on the doorstep of a catholic like adoption house he didn't even want to have to deal with the kid. And when the mom's like, no, I don't want to, uh, Iceberg says that dad picked him up and slant, threw him against the wall and left and just left them. Mm. So now his mom's a single mom. She's got nothing going on. The only thing that she can do is straighten hair. So for like a nickel or whatever, she's going door to door asking women to allow her to straighten her hair. And um, doing this, she meets a guy named Henry. And Henry is like one of the best well-to-do 
business people in the area for black people. It was, um, he actually owned his own business mm. in a time when most black people didn't. Mm-hmm. And he was, he was very well off. And I guess Iceberg's mom was hot or something. Uh, but for whatever reason, this guy Henry fell in love with his mom, even though she had a son. And he was like maybe like five or six at this time and brought her into his house. And they had cars and jewelry and nice furniture and a nice house and all that kind of stuff. And this is even kind of like during the Depression or whatever. And... um he asked, Henry asked his mom, like, what, would, what do you want? Like, what, what would you like? And the mom said, I want my own barbershop. I want a, my own beauty salon. Mm-hmm. And he had enough money to buy in the, get the black part of the town, but like in the center of the black part of town, buy a shop, all new equipment, couple of different stalls so she could bring in some girls all this stuff and she was down there doing hair and nails and she was making money hand over fist. There was like tons of traffic and tons of people coming in and it was like, you know, kind of like what you see in the movies, the spot to be at. She's down there. This guy Henry set her up, loved her. And apparently, according to Iceberg Slim, this guy Henry was so kind to Iceberg where his dad threw him on the wall and all this other crazy shit. Henry was helping him with his studies and was like a really good, kind, church-going, Christian, upfront, nothing. I mean, I like would look to see if like Henry wanted him to reach for stuff in his pocket. None of that shit, mm. right? He was a good guy, but ugly. Apparently, Henry was just not, not easy to look at. But it didn't matter. He had money. He was successful, and he was disciplined. Who walks into the mom's beauty shop but a guy? A handsome guy, dressed to the nines, silk shirts, silk tie, guy named Steve. Mm. You got to watch out for guys named Steve. Mm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and this guy was handsome, and he ran some <clears throat> kind of game on his mom and convinced her that if she moved and left with him, then, you know, everything great was going to happen for him. So this guy, Steve... Somehow convinces the mom. The mom leaves Henry. And now Iceberg, who's just still a little boy Mm -hmm. and kind of naive, he witnesses the scene of Mm -hmm. this man, this ugly man, who his mom got everything she ever wanted from. Worked him. Worked him. And he's watching this. And this is what he says. I loved Henry with all my heart. He was the only father I had ever really known. He could have saved himself an early death from a broken heart if instead of falling so madly in love with mama, he had run as fast as he could away from her. Mm. Think about that. Think about, you know, your experiences that you were molested by a woman. Then you watch your mom, right, tear apart this guy that you respected, who was so in love with her, hook, line, and sinker, that he's crushed. You can see that's maybe the second, that's maybe the second pillar in creating somebody who becomes a pimp. 
Somebody who's going to make it his business to punish women and never be taken advantage of Mm -hmm. by them. And Iceberg says that this guy, Steve, was not too smart. He said in his pimp later pimp mind, he looks back at the scene and says, what this guy, Steve, should have done, he should have stayed with the mom, right, conned her, done whatever, and just built the business, just had her turn over cash to him. Instead of blowing the town, leaving the business, and going to someplace new, he could have, within two years, probably just gotten all of the money. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's this there's this scene where he says that as his mom's leaving he says one scene in my life I can never forget was that morning when mama had finished packing her clothes and Henry the good guy lost his inner fight for pride and dignity he fell down on his knees and bawled like a scalded child pleading with mama not to leave him begging her to stay he had welded his arms around her legs a grown man with his arms around her legs. Fuck that shit. His voice shit. Ho- hoarse in anguish as he whimpered. He agonized, eyes walled up all around her, and he wailed, please don't leave me. You are sure to kill me if you do. I ain't done nothing. If I have, forgive me. Oh, man. I will never forget her face, Iceberg says, as cold as an executioner's, which she was as she kicked and struggled loose from him. Then with an awful grin on her face, she lied and said, Henry, honey, I just want to get away for a while. I'll be back. And with that, she left with Steve and me. Think about that. Think about that scene, witnessing that as a young boy, seeing a man fall down like that. Mm. I bet every cell in your body is like, fuck that. I ain't ever gonna be me. I ain't going to ever do that. And, of course, life with Steve was terrible. In fact, Steve, every time his mom would leave, the new guy, the bad guy, Steve would turn to Iceberg and say, I'm going to fucking kill you. Mm. Right? And get the hell out of here. He's always trying to get rid of the son. And, uh, and one time, dude, when I read this, I almost, I don't know, I almost lost. I, like it, it hurt me. He tells this story about how this guy, he had a little kitten at this time. So he, he's living with this mean guy, Steve, who's so mean to his mom, starts hitting his mom, by the way. And also, you know, mean to him and all that shit. And the only thing he loves is a kitten. He's got this kitten. And he's keeping the kitten as a pet. And it's the only like positive thing in his life. He's a little boy with a kitten, right? And when the mom leaves, the little kitten acts it like poops in the kitchen. And Steve goes and grabs that kitten and bashes its brains out right on the wall. And he said that, Iceberg said that he cried so hard that he threw up. Mm. And it was at that moment that he hated his mom and he hated Steve. Mm. The other thing that's really good about the Iceberg Slim book is that he's got a ton of like great. How many books did he put up? He might have put out, I want to say like 10. Really? 14. Oh, really? Yeah, he, he wrote like Iceberg Slam, and then he wrote um, Trick, Trick Baby. Then he wrote um, 
Mama Black Widow. He wrote Mama Black Widow about homosexuals in the in the African American community at that time. Mm. And and you know when you're living in this world, he's got this great story in here where this he once he started when he was a what they call a a chili pimp. Mm-hmm. A chili pimp is like an early pimp, a, a novice. When you said chili pimp. Chili pimp. He just turned right around. He heard the word chili. Yeah, what happened? Yeah, right. I didn't know if you're talking about like a chili pepper. Uh-huh. No, he, he was a chili pimp or like chili, like N- it's cold. <laughs> no, chili pepper, C H I L I, chili pimp. When a chili pimp is somebody, according to Iceberg Slim, has got like one chick and he just started. So why is it okay. chili? I don't know. He didn't go into that. Chili pimp. But it, chili pimp ain't a Mac Daddy. <laughs> so. He's when he's a chili pimp. He's got like one broad that he's he's working with, right? And he's trying to run some game and whatever. And uh, he goes to this bar, and it's crazy. This bar is called like it's called the Fun House. And in this, the, the whole gimmick of this bar is that when you go into this bar, right, it's built like a crazy fun house out of circus or a carnival. So there's like wacky mirrors and like all these pranksters, but he doesn't know that. He just like walks in like it's a, a bar, and I think he's walking in to, to get away from being chased by some cops or something like that. So he goes into this bar, and he sits on the stool, and when he sits on the stool, the stool starts to slowly lower. Like he orders a drink, he's like, "Yeah, I'll have a rum and coke," and then the stool starts going down, and then like a couple of guys are like yucking it up over in the corner. He doesn't get what's so funny, <laughs> and then. And when the drink comes, the guy pushes a button and the thing pops back up and there's like, you know, Boston cream pies flying around. And I don't know, but it was like the gimmick of this bar. And like, anyway, Iceberg didn't think it was that fucking funny. So he gets the fuck out of there. And when, as he's walking out, this hot white chick like hits him up. She's like, I'll give you a ride. And he's like, what? And so he's like, okay. So he gets in the car and this woman's driving him and he starts rolling some pimp game on her and he's like man if i could turn this chick out <laughs> i mean i'm making money you know this is my lucky day this is my third day on the pimp run and i'm almost got me a white woman so she talks to this white woman and she's like maybe 19 18 she says her parents are out of town right and he's like yeah and he's like you know running all the like yeah i could feel there was like a vibe between us and all stuff saying all this crazy shit anyway she get, he gets to the house, right? And he remembers what the old pimp told him. How you, how you start with a hoe is how you're going to end with a hoe. Mm. The, first one, the first woman that he really got started with was a woman named Pepper, who was an older lady who was a whore, who had done everything, right? And saw him, and he was just a young, he was just a young whippersnapper, and she was married to somebody, and she turned him out. He started sleeping with her. He didn't. He wasn't turning her into a prostitute or anything. She was, and she taught him how to do what she called the circus of love, which was to do everything under the sun in bed. And he said, if Sodom and Gomorrah, if she would have been alive in Sodom and Gomorrah days, mm-hmm. they would have fucking God would have burned her up right there because she was into some freaky shit. He didn't go deep into everything, but he said there wasn't a hole, an inch as flesh that wasn't bitten, punched, fucked, or hit. And his woman, like she wanted it all. He was doing everything. He was having a good time. Mm. Older woman, mm. right? Doing a good time. So some pimp told her like, hey, man, you ain't a pimp. He's like, what do you mean? He's like, man, you're already getting Georgia by this woman. She's already got you running all around trying mm-hmm. to figure out this, trying to figure out that. And the pimp told him, how you start with a hoe is how you're going to end with a hoe. 
So you, every time you start with a hoe, you better make sure she pays you first. Because if she doesn't hand over that money from the very get-go, it ain't ever going to happen. And there's some funny stories of Iceberg Slim trying to get this pepper lady to give him money. And now she's like tricking him, like not giving him any money. Eventually he lands in jail because she, she double crosses him. Anyway, so with this white woman, he's like, all right, I'm going to start it up. Right. She's so like, yeah, baby. She's like, why don't you come to my house? I, I, I need some help with some stuff. Do you think you can help out? And he's like, yeah. And it's a nice part of town. And it's a gated community. And they go in there. And he's like, listen, I'm an African-American man. So it's like, I don't think I can just walk in with a white woman into your house. I, it's not a good idea. She's like, no problem. Takes them around to the back. And they sneak into the back. The parents are gone. It's like a three-story mansion. They walk in and da-da-da. The phone rings immediately, and Iceberg Slim tr- flips out a little bit, mm. gets scared because it's like, oh, she's like talking to her, her, you know, her mom. Oh yeah, I'm just getting ready for bed. Meanwhile, Iceberg, you know, she got a black man in the thing. Her mom probably would flip out if she knew what was really going down. And uh, you know, he's sitting there with her, and uh, so then he says to her, "He's like, listen, I." understand you and you understand me and we're gonna get down to business she took her top off she's a nice titty so but you're gonna have to give me some money i can't do what i'm doing with you right now unless you give me money so she goes to her piggy bank right and she gives in this piggy bank she says there's about 25 dollars and quarters in this thing or whatever and he's like all right takes the piggy bank i mean she goes now listen okay i'm you know i'm young and I don't know what to do, and I, and and you got to promise not to, not to laugh at me, and you got to promise not to, to you just gotta have to accept me. And he's like, yeah, what do you mean? No problem. Just shut up. I'm trying to get down. Takes off, and he's like, man, nice white breast, and he pulls down her panties, and he looks down, and it's smooth and hairless, and he's like, oh man. She's like, man, oh, this is great, and maybe she was concerned because she was hairless. Then he spread her legs, and her dick flipped up. And she had a full-on erection. And Iceberg Slim was like, what? yeah. He's like, he's like, bitch. He's like, I'm not gay. I'm not da-da-da. He yells at her, gives her the riot act, grabs the piggy bank, and runs out of there. And she's screaming at him from the thing. So it was, it was a, it was a dude. A dude who tried to fucking seduce Iceberg Slim to blah, 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 blah. And anyway, he ran out of there. It's a funny story because. You know, it, it 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 illuminates kind of like the the perverted world. See, during that time, when you think about make America great again, or you think about when people talk about the fifties and the forties, and that was the best time in America, you can see like at the surface level that might have seemed true, but at the, underneath all that, there was a world of just perversion and bizarre sex that was happening. <sighs> Does that, that doesn't surprise you, right? No. Right. And there's a lot of theorists who think that on a certain level, um, it's actually problematic now that that's been removed. Meaning, there are some people who feel like sex doesn't work right in the right way if everything's permitted. Like, in some weird, strange way, you need to have... A prohibition or a slight like we're not looking at it or you know we're not acknowledging it in order for sex to function in order for sex to to function properly 
And what's odd about this time is that it really, that was really cemented in place. And the place for African Americans at this time was to be the purveyors of this prohibited sex. Mm -hmm. He would talk about how many white guys, he had a con that he was running with his buddy where he would dress up like a woman, like, you know, I don't know, like a block away in a red dress. And then his buddy would wait outside this bar where these white dudes that were drunk would come out of. And he said that white guys would come down to this area of town looking for black women all the time. And these were married dudes. These were dudes that were deacons in the church. These were whatever. But every so often they had to get away and come down and have this like African-American sex. And in his later essays, Iceberg Slim goes into detail as to why he thinks uh, racially that's, that was happening. Like he, he said that there's this myth. This is, this is his words. That white women are the super cunt. Okay? That's what Iceberg Slim says. And as a result, it's pure and it's good and it's whatever. And that this has caused a hmm. harm or a shattering of African-American women's self-esteem. At the, and he's writing in the 60s is what he's talking about. And he's saying that, that the idea that the highest good that a woman could be would be a white woman. And he says, by implication, that would mean then, by societal, social standards, that the African-American woman is the lowest. And he said that this is what has really fucked with a lot of African-American women's self-esteem and mm. pride, made it so difficult. But he said there was something about that dynamic that caused the white men to want to sexually partake of what is not what is not regarded as the as the purest woman that 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 the racists actually were attracted to and needed to which is why all these white men would come down for these black prostitutes and, and to the extent that they would come out of a bar drunk hand his buddy some money his buddy would be like look see that hot chick down there right she's gonna meet you over at the hotel just give me twenty dollars you get twenty dollars and the guy would start walking towards iceberg who was dressed like a woman and then right when he was like halfway across the street his buddy with the money would take off running and iceberg would take off running <laughs> and they were calling that the murphy that was mm. the con they called the murphy mm. but um the other thing that's kind of crazy so is he started off as a as like a con man yeah he started off as a con man in one of his books uh just details all the great cons that he learned mm. and all of the parts of the con mm. dude there's like these weird parts the hook the prod mm. and these terms go these terms the clothes the hook the prod the clothes these are all pieces of how you build a con the structure of a con I love it. so like if you read one of, if you read his books on cons you'll learn how to structure a con like why does it work how does it work mm. how does the sale work on a sucker and um long white con yeah the long white con which is which is a story that he wrote about a, a black dude who could pass for white mm. and he was running all the he also wrote a book about the mafia called death wish not the death wish that you're thinking of with charles bronson and whatever but but in any event he goes to prison uh probably like four times iceberg slim 
And uh, maybe we should play a little bit of, because Ice-T eventually did a documentary on Iceberg Slim. And this documentary, uh, uh, it's called Iceberg Slim, Portrait of a Pimp. Like, here's a little bit from it. Highly recommend it. If prostitution is known as the oldest profession, then pimping is the second oldest profession. Well, do you want to go get a room? Yeah, how much? Right now, it's been taken out of context because mainstream. That's Snoop. Has adapted and adopted that word and adopted the formula of pimping and thinking that they know what it is. And Snoop obviously took his complete persona from, and he says so, Iceberg Slim. His whole idea of being a pimp, his idea of being, you know, he kind of went from gangster rap into sort of an Iceberg Slim style. Uh, character and dude they have quincy jones in this uh documentary talking about uh talking about uh iceberg slim and there's some wanted to master manipulating the psychology of the hoes and the women when he started to realize that the best pimps that is to say the most successful ones were the ones with the coldest with the least emotion the real iceberg hearts that's why he called himself iceberg and he got that name iceberg because he was high on some coke. He was shooting coke. He was high on coke. And he was in one of these like bars and somebody, there was a scuffle, a fire fracas. And somebody fired off a gun. And the gun shot Iceberg Slim's hat off. And because he was so high, he didn't flinch. But his buddy was like, man, I've never seen anybody not flinch. He's like, you're as cold. You know what? call you iceberg slim and that, that's when the name stuck that's how the name stuck you never came across any of these things sean like in your in your no i was just reading the uh wikipedia page and it says something about in the 70s that he did an album oh he's he did actually where he just kind of recites passages from his his book Sick. Yeah, one of the songs is called Broadway Sam, Iceberg Slim, Reflection. Listen to that. Dude, that is funky. Broadway Sam. There you the go. The Big Mac Man. You ought to know the name. I almost cried the day he died. It was a dirty shame. He liked to play on old Broadway. That's how he got his name. He lived off the hicks from out in the sticks. He was a master of the long shoe game. He was a master of the long shoe. Always pressed. Wait a minute. Go ahead. Okay. I know that you know this style of. Of, of talking or whatever is, is long, long, long been developed. But would you say that Reflections influenced hip-hop? Absolutely. In the, in the same way that I just said Ice-T. Oh, the music Reflections? I mean the actual formation of, of hip-hop. Mm. Like rapping. No, I don't think so because Reflections, well, maybe. Reflections comes in 1976. That's yeah. the album. So there was already a lot of spoken word. Yeah, yeah. I'm not music. saying that it like, 
but yeah saying. absolutely yeah. i definitely think that anybody who was in the early rap game knew iceberg slim and had probably listened to reflections he's got stuff called the fall the game part one the fall the game part two so you got to ask yourself referring to it as the game and referring mm. to the rapper as a game how much is that influenced by iceberg slim to the bitter end listen and a better hope bitter end and a better get to know although a dog is man's best friend she was a three-way winch <laughs> she played jasper in a pinch and took him around the hall no gene or john this hoe couldn't come cause that trick was never born she was a i mean dude I, i'm just thinking about like 1976 you know people smoking weed and just sitting around listening to this uh i mean it's kind of wild <laughs> That does sound kind of wild. You know, he's talking about a woman that's Who's willing. Who's talking? That was that's Iceberg Slim talking. He made an album. It's uh, pretty crazy. Um, and you know, another thing is like another things like and other things that are great from it. Like he would say things like that guy was so ugly he could break daylight with his fist. Damn. And <laughs> um. But anyway, so he goes to prison. What year is this now? Well, I would say it's like 1938. Um, first prison he went to was like this place where uh, the guard, there was a main guard there. I think he went to Wampound in Wisconsin, mm. which was like this fucking castle, kind of like uh, San Fol Quentin mm. or Folsom, right? And so he goes, he goes to this and uh, it's like overcrowded even back then. And they had a silent code. Like you couldn't, like it was very quiet. He got there, they were starting to ease up on it a little bit. But this prison had a thing where it's like at dinner, you could only talk to the guy to your left and the right. You couldn't talk across the table. And the prisoners had to wear sports coats to dinner. Oh my god! I mean, it was real. It when I when I read this, I was like, "Holy shit!" And when he got there, he was there with a there was a prison guard who was like the lead prison guard, the lead bull, who was a mute. He didn't talk, but he had a cane with a brass knock like knocker on the top of it, and he would point to where you wanted you to go, and if you didn't get it, he fucking just crack you right in the skull with it. And uh, he was um, he was there. And he said the first night he was sleeping, he felt something on his leg, and he like pulled the covers back, and there was like welts on his leg, and bed bugs ran away. And then he turned on like the lighter or whatever it was, and looked up the wall, and he just saw a parade of fucking bed bugs marching down the wall. And they didn't have running water. They put all the African American prisoners in the block that didn't have plumbing, so they all had to shit in a bucket, and for a year. He was shitting in a bucket, getting eaten alive by bed bugs and listening to other people talk about the pimp game and trying to learn as much as he could about how it is to pimp or what you need to pimp and like just becoming more and more like serious. Like once he gets out, he's going to go right back to the pimp game and do it right this time. Hmm. Did you ever have any kind of like bed bugs or whatever, Steve, when you were in prison? Mm -mm. They wrap, nope. Don't they wrap the... the mattresses now in like a 
like a thick vinyl vinyl yeah but uh some would be cracked and old and some right. would be newer and like if you had some money you get yourself a newer one <laughs> if you didn't you're getting some fucked off one right yeah. one of the things i found crazy about the iceberg story was that one of the like immutable laws of being a pimp was that you can't let a woman buy a drink for you mm. do you understand that like do you understand why that would be do you understand why it would be that you couldn't allow a woman to buy a drink for you if you're a pimp? Yeah. Why? Because that's going to put them in control. He says, I was only several months away from age 20. My baby face was gone. I was six feet two. I was thin as a greyhound on a crash diet. I went into the Underworld Bar, the 7-Eleven Club. That, by the way, the 7-Eleven Club was a famous jazz club run by one of the richest black dudes in America. We got to talk about this guy at some point. But this guy, they had a thing that they ran out of the 700 call, Club called the Policy. You ever heard of that? No. The Policy was an African-American numbers game. Mm. That apparently, you know, it was just like any other numbers game where... You know, everyone would pay like a penny or whatever, and they'd be included into this lottery. And then the numbers would be picked at random, and somebody mm -hmm. would win 5,000 bucks. The oh, numbers. It's the numbers. But the black people called it the policy because it was an insurance policy. They called it the policy, and there was a black version of it. And black people even sold books on how to pick numbers. And it's cool because you can find variations of this, like old style books based on your, you know, like they would be called like the dreamer or like, you know, uh, you know, witchcraft. And then you'd open up the books and they would give you different random ways to pick the numbers on policy. But this policy game made this guy who owned the 7-Eleven club where where Iceberg Slim goes right now, this policy game made this guy that richest African-American at the time in the United States. Dude, that's how P.T. Barnum got his money. How? Running lotteries. That's how he did it? Yeah. He, would, he worked at stores and then he would, they would run lottery systems out of the stores and basically they would give you a bunch of stuff, a bunch of food or items or whatever, but they would sell you shit that wasn't worth exactly... What the lotter what the the lottery brought in. Well then he started doing his own lottery outside of stores. So that's how he, he came up. I mean, eventually he he went on to do, you know, showmanship stuff but and circus stuff, but Man. But that back in the day those those lotteries were, were huge. Apparently the, I mean, running the numbers can make you a lot of money. Man, tons. We should do like hard luck numbers, bro. We should run I mean, what are we doing? Why are we trying to do it? We should just tell people, like, look, we're going we, we're gonna to randomly pick some numbers. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, I mean, it's illegal, I guess, is why we can't do it. But right. that's nothing different than the state lottery. That's why the state took it over, right? I mean, because then you'd have a whole bunch of people running lotteries. Yep. Yeah, but why not? I mean, why do we need the state's lottery? Fuck the state's lottery. I'd never win that fucker anyway. Yeah. We should fucking start our own. I mean, obviously, this is all just hypothetical. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
the NSA is listening, this is hypothetical. But hypothetically, we could run our own numbers. Yeah, I like the idea of that. Imagine that. Imagine if hypothetically we were able to say, look, everyone pays in a buck. You got a guaranteed winner. Someone's going to win. Going to guarantee it. Right? Whatever the amount is. And then, you know, whatever portion's got to be kept for the house. And then that money could be used to buy some uh, equipment. Maybe... Maybe that's what we'll tell Lepke. We were running numbers. Sean was running numbers. Got caught. State's coming it's down on him. State crime. Yeah. Sean was running the running numbers. Um. So anyway, yeah. So anyway, Iceberg's in this this, this bar, and and this guy, the the bartender, gives Iceberg a bottle of Coke on the log before me, and I guess log means like the bar, mm-hmm. the log. I yank my eyebrows in a question mark, like what the fuck. He lisped, the runty black bitch in the middle of the bar sent you a taste. Without taking my eyes off this thin yellow face, I said, Sugar, run her down to me. Is the bitch qualified? Is she a whore? Does she have, does she have a man? The corners of his mouth seesawed. He slugged his soggy, dirty bar rag against my reflection on the bat top. He almost whispered, this bitch ain't nothing but a young skunk from St. Louis. She ain't nothing but a jazzy jive whore. I'm mm-hmm. more whore than she is. Mm-hmm. She ain't got no man. She's a cum freak. She's Georgia three bullshit mm-hmm. pimp since she got here a month ago. If your game is strong, you could play a hog out of her ass. She ain't but 18. <laughs> I eased a bone from my pocket, put it on the bar for a fresh Coke. I frantically remembered those pimp rundowns in the joint. I said, tell that bitch no dice. I'll take care of the little things. And if she's qualified, maybe I'll let her take care of the big things. Give the bitch a drink on me. So that goes mm-hmm. to what you're saying. He's going to be the one in control. You're not supposed to, you're not supposed to uh, let a woman or whatever. Buy. So he goes, on the jukebox, Ella Fitzgerald was crying about her little yellow basket. The barkeep twinkle-toed toward her with a wire and a drink. Through the blue mirror, I zeroed my eyes in on the target. My ass bone starched on stiff point. Her big peepers were two sexy dancers in the velvet midnight of her cute Pekingese face. Damn. <laughs> He's a good writer. Man. Duh, that's, why he, that's, why he, that's why his book took off. It's so millions. By the way, Holloway, it's, they, everyone says the royalties that Iceberg got played was like zilch compared to what he actually sold. Mm. It became a huge fight between Iceberg and Holloway. And Holloway's always saying shit like, whenever you hear them, we paid all our writers what they were due. Like, it, the way they say it, you can kind of tell, like, you know, they made a bunk. We did exactly what we said. Yeah, exactly. Read the contract. Right, right, right. And when the cool thing about Iceberg Slim is he lets you in on how he's feeling internally. Because he's like, gets really excited about some of these chicks, but he's got to keep it in check because he's a pimp now. Right? Hot scratch fever streaked through me. I thought if I could cop her and get a pimp's term, she would be out of pocket poison to all white tricks that pinned her. Those pimps back in the joint sure knew basic horology. I was glad my ears had flapped to all those rundowns. They had said, chase a whore, you get a chump's weak cop. Stock a whore, you get a pimp's strong cop. Chase a whore, stock a whore. But that's almost language that I don't. Do you understand what he's saying there, Sean? No, I didn't catch the. He's saying if you stalk her, what you get a okay. Yeah, you got to chase her down. That's one thing, but you just got to wait on her. 
Chase a whore, you get a chimp's weak cop. Stalk a whore, you get a pimp's strong cop. Cop? Cop means like getting control or grabbing, I think. Like you cop a smoke, you cop a whore, wow. you cop a drink. And I think what he's saying is, is if you chase after a whore, you're, you're going to be a chump if you stalk. But stalk, I don't think he means that we understand stalking, which is like being a weirdo. <laughs> he's saying stalk means a pre-planned right. hunting, like a cat stalking its prey. Right. My turn down of her measly offer had her jumpy. It was a slick, sharp hook twisting in the bitch's mind. Her juicy tongue darted out like a red lizard past her ivory teeth. It slithered all over her full lips. She wiggled toward me in an uneven race with a barkeep. Mm. He was sliding her green drink between me and the elephant. I heard a low, excited trumpeting in the trunk of the elephant. He had dug her flawless props and gourmet rear end. It was rolling inside her glove-tight white dress. I painted a lukewarm, indifferent grin on my face as she perched on the stool. I noticed a roll of scratch wedged deep between the black peaks. She said, who the hell are you? And what is that off-the-wall shit you cracked on the bartender? My eyes were sub-zero spotlights on her face, and I said, Bitch, my name is Blood, and my wire wasn't off the wall. It was real, like me, bitch. You sure got a filthy, sassy job. It could get your ass ruptured. Damn. That's, his, that's the first, that's how he approaches the first, his first whore. That's how he approaches By the way, eventually that whore turns state's evidence on him, sends him back to the pen. Mm. That's something that Ice-T said in his video, in his documentary. He said that he tells people that the best, the best business, he's like, don't try to be a pimp because an ounce of weed or an ounce of cocaine ain't ever going to wake up in the middle of the night and try to stab you. Mm. He's like, dealing with whores, dealing with women, and trying to pressure them and all this other stuff and, and ones that are trying to test you all the time that's the other thing Iceberg says it ain't easy he's like man these women easy. trying to test you all the time easy, yeah. <laughs> uh, that's what he says um, and when he goes away the second time he escapes from prison and he goes away and the way he escapes from prison is weird but in this prison yard they put took him to a work camp where he's working coal mm-hmm. and like you know Guys who want to be pimps, meaning like getting women to do a bunch of work and they don't right, do anything, right. ain't going to work no coal pile. Like that ain't going to last long. They don't want to swing a fucking pickaxe. They ain't going to. This, this dude, after like two days, Iceberg was like, I'm about to die. I got to figure out how to get out of here. So on this prison work camp, dude, they have like a, there was a shed, a, like a utility shed. And he, he was watching it. And he saw that one of the like screws would go in and out of it and they weren't locking it. And he was looking at all the angles of the walls and everything. And I don't know how they built this work camp, but there was one, there was one place where there was a blind spot, but he had to be quick. And the way they did the camp. So what he did was he made a dummy that his celly had to put away after it was after count. So they wouldn't find the dummy, but he made a dummy out of some clothes, uh, out of some clothes that he got from the laundry and like whatever, just enough to make him look like he's laying in the bed. And then he, towards the end, there was like a 10 minute period between coming back from work and the count and where they may have lost count or they weren't paying too much attention. And he fucking sprinted to the shed. He wasn't seen. He tried the hand. It wasn't locked. He got in and he hid in there. 
And then his partner, Sully, was supposed to put the dummy in during the first count. And he noticed that when they did the count at night, they didn't wake him up. Like three or four times, they wouldn't wake him up to say, hey. They just would shine the light and say, okay. So he's in there, and he was sure that he was going to get caught. Nope, didn't get caught. He's in there. Then he hears someone. So he stays in there all night in the shed, right? The next morning, someone comes to the to the door. He has to jump up and hang from the rafter up in the in the shed or whatever. The guy opens the door, doesn't see him. He's hanging up there. He said his muscles felt like they were fucking just full, just burning. And eventually stays there long enough for it to get dark again. And he sneaks out and he climbs up one of the walls or whatever. He climbs up on a roof. It's and by the way, it's not maximum security. It's a work camp, so it wasn't like you know there was a ton of people watching. And he tells this whole story about how he gets up, has to jump to catch the edge of a gutter on a roof, pulls himself up, goes down the other side, and he looks down, and the drop is like actually like he thought he could just hang, but it was really like a forty foot drop. Like Brian. It's <laughs> like shoeless, shoeless Brian Stevens. He lets go and falls, and like there's a huge gash in his leg, but he gets on the other side and he's able to limp out of that prison, hitchhike a ride, and get to his aunt's house, like in another state or something like that. Makes it over there, and now he's on the lam. Now he's an escaped convict mm. running around, and now he's trying to get back into the pimp game. When he was on a run, he met up with some chick that they called No Thumbs Helen. She had no thumbs? Her name was No Thumbs Helen. She was at the time one of the slickest from the person thieves in the country, meaning pickpocket. Pickpocket. Yeah. I've always wanted to know how to pickpocket. I don't know why they call She was a magician. For almost a year, she left a trail of empty wallets across five states. We were in Iowa when Helen stung a rich sodbuster for 7200 I was in bed when she threw it on the bed. Excited? Sure I was. My heart boomed like bombs going off. She didn't know it. I was icy cool. I casually scooped it up and counted it. I had a poker face. I said, now listen, bitch, run this sting down. I got to know how hot the scratch is. Did you get all the sucker had? I'll bet I'll be a salty son of a bitch to read in the papers that you missed a bundle. Her rundown told me it was best to split. Right. So he's trying to find out, like, how much did you steal? and We got to get out of town. But what she would do is she would fucking get the get like she would do like a, she was a pickpocket and she would set it up like she was a whore, like she was going to do something. And what she would do is she would get the guy all excited. Right. And like, I mean, show she would pull up her dress and show him the stuff and be like, you want some of this? And the guy would be like, yeah, and get all excited. (laughs) And then she would, you know, you know, have him like help him undo his pants just a little bit, get a little bit out and then pull him tight and grind up against him. And his pants weren't all the way off and he was getting all excited. And then she she, reached in his pockets right behind him, right right behind him. She and the reason why she was so good. No thumbs, Helen. And she, she would reach behind, grab it, take out his cash, and put the wallet back exactly where it was. She would take the cash, and then she would, in her hand, then she would say, it's the cops. I hear something. And he'd be, Ugh. And then she'd say, hurry up, get dressed, get dressed. And he would start to get dressed. She would slide the cash into her cat. Then she would say, listen, there's a hotel just around the corner. Meet me there, room 231. And he would reach behind and check to his wallet was still there and say okay i'll be right there and then she would just leave and bounce with his money and she fucking just pilfered a ton of dudes that way without even having to have sex with him 
So where where did most of this take place? Most of his Milwaukee. Really? Yeah, Milwaukee in Chicago ish in Milwaukee. He he doesn't come out to LA until after he's done. Oh oh really? Why? Did he make it his home out here? Yeah, he didn't he was he got finally got locked in solitary. I mean, there's a couple of things that go on. We can just collapse it all, but the point of the matter is is there's a point where he's getting older. I mean, he's pimping in Milwaukee and he meets a guy named Poison, Sweet Poison. Mm. And Sweet Poison. Sweet, Sweet Poison, poison. is Sweet the biggest. William Dick Poison. <laughs> he's, the, he's the biggest pimp uh, in the world, like right there at that point. And Sweet Poison starts breaking him off the game. And this guy, Sweet Poison, he's got the cops paid off. He's got like a nice place in the white part of town. He's like maybe one of the toughest, most crazy black pimps ever and he's running and he's got the biggest stable and he's been in the game the longest and uh he's the one that kind of took iceberg under his wing after a while and kind of gave him a lot of pointers but then he also double crossed iceberg at a certain point when basically what happened was sweet poison told his friend like hey the feds are after uh, Iceberg. They know that he's, you know, moved a woman over state lines, whatever, violated the Man's Act or whatever it was. But but basically what had happened was, was that he was chasing Iceberg out and then just took all of Iceberg's women. And later Iceberg says, after Iceberg does go to prison again, this time this is for a solitary, later Iceberg said that Sweet Poison killed himself uh, shot himself in the head. He lost everything. Shot himself in the head, and he left a note that said, "Goodbye, square bitches. You can all kiss my black pimping ass." And then just blew his head off. Mm. If you can imagine that. They said what happened was they said the World War II fucked up the the game because a lot of women were getting jobs. World War II started, and Sweet Poison told iceberg like this ain't good for the pimp game that's where it's like why he's like because all these men are going to go overseas and they're going to start giving women factory jobs which they did and when african even and even african-american women and when these women are able to get like that kind of money and without having to be a whore you're gonna it's gonna be a lot harder to find women that are willing to do that work and sure enough uh a lot of women that Iceberg had and even Sweet lost a lot of women because they decided, fuck this shit. I'm just going to go get a regular job now that they're open. So I thought that was kind of an interesting aspect that you wouldn't know. Like you would think war would help prostitution industry. Right, right. But only where the soldiers are. Right. But all the working force, the male workforce left, it gave women jobs and made it harder for these guys to figure out how to get uh, whores. The economics of pimping. So there's, you know, there's a lot of different things. Another thing that they that pimp, like older pimps would tell Iceberg is like, you don't want to try to pimp a girl that's from the town she's in. Control is easier and tighter away from the familiar setting. A girl in a strange surroundings depends more on her man. She needs his advice and guidance more. So they were always telling him like, if you cop a whore in one city, you want to move to another city so that it was easier to uh, control them. Later, dude, Iceberg uh, regretted 
you know, a lot of the stuff that he did to women and understood that part of part of his role as a pimp or whatever you want to call it was formulated and f- flowed from um, his anger towards his mother and what happened with Henry and all that stuff. And um, and when he got married later and went square, he got three girls. He did. He got three girls. And he wouldn't pick them up facing him. He'd turn them around and pick them up because he didn't want to. He still had a thing about being too given over sentimentally to a woman. And he didn't want to pick the girls up and let them kiss him. And then him, I think, just be too wrapped up in him. The crazy part is at the end of his life, you know, when he stops, when he gets out of solitary, I'm trying to find solitary because this is the one, this is where he stops pimping. And it's kind of a, it's a very intense, here it is. It's an intense thing. He goes to jail again. This is his fourth time in jail. And, uh, and I think they finally catch up to him that he's an escaped convict. So they bring him back. Uh, is and, he still in Milwaukee? No, he's actually gone all the way up to Seattle to get away from the heat. People are starting to figure out who he is or something. And uh, he gets captured by the cops. And uh, up in Washington, the chief flew in his fingerprints. The city rollers with the captain of the guards from the joint busted Stacy and me, Iceberg. I was held for the escape. Stacy for harboring me. There was one angle I couldn't figure. All the way to the lockup, it bothered me. How did the city police and the screw know just where that big city to put their hands on me? Yeah, because he was in a he was in a hotel room with the with the, his last whore in in Washington, and he'd gone to a small town. He was trying to lay low, and the cops came by and they were like, um, for another reason. And for whatever reason, they saw Stacy and Iceberg Slim in this hotel room and just something didn't seem right to them. And they kept coming back and they thought that they were trying to, uh, they were, he was doing prostitution or something wasn't quite right. And they were checking up on him. And through the checking up, eventually they found that he's the escape prisoner from way back when. He got transferred to county jail. And he's like, I've made many stupid mistakes in my life. None more stupid than the one that put me back in the shit house. I had a letter in my bag from Stacy. The rollers that searched our room, the cops, while we were in jail, made a notation of my city address. So that's how they were able to tie him to the escaped, uh, to the prison escape. Uh, so basically they take him back and they're, now they got him. Mama came from California to visit me. She was sick and old. In fact, she was dying. She had heart trouble and diabetes. By the way, Iceberg Slim died of diabetes. Gangrene. Mm. Yeah. He had sugar diabetes and he had uh, his foot got gangrene in it. And they told him they were going to have to amputate it. And he said that he wanted to wait because they were running some tests and maybe they wouldn't have to amputate it. So he waited. And... Right at that time, the the riots were kicking off because of Rodney King, 1992. It's just started. Imagine how old this guy is. He's seen so much shit. He's in California now. King riots. And like the first night, riots go off. He's in the hospital room. He eats a hamburger and then dies. And that he died on the first night that the riots kicked off. Anyway, uh, 
his mom comes to visit him in the jail. And uh, he's like, man, this is an old scene. I was in a barred cage once again, and she was crying on the outside of it. And she, she sobbed. She said, son, this is the last time we're going to see each other. Your mama's so tired. God gave me the strength to make this long trip to see my poor baby before I go to sleep in Jesus' arms. Son, it's too bad you don't love me as much as I love you. And Iceberg says, I was crying. I was squeezing her thin, pale hands in mine between the bars. I said, now look, mama, you know all we, we all got Indian blood in us. Mama, you ain't going to die. I'll live to get a hundred like Papa Joe. Your father, come on, mama, stop it. Ain't I got enough to worry? I love you. Honest, mama, forgive me not writing regular stuff. I love you. So there's this like scene and then the screw comes up and the visit was over. His hard face softened in pity as he looked at her. He knew she was critically sick. So they, they take him to uh, the jail and they're going to take him. He goes back to court for the third and last time. Judge orders him into the custody of the joint's captain of the screws. The captain and his aide were grimly silent. Their prison sedan sliced through the sparkling April day. I was on the rear seat. I gazed at the scurrying lucky citizens on the street, and I wondered what they'd use on me at the joint, rubber hoses or blackjacks. I felt so low I wouldn't have cared if I dropped dead right there on the spot. And uh, when he gets there, in the early afternoon, a screw marched me to the office of the chief of the joint security. He looked like a pure Aryan stormtrooper sitting behind his desk. He didn't have a blackjack or a rubber hose in his hands. He was grinning like maybe Air Schickelgruber at the railroad coach in France. His voice was a low, lethal whisper. He said, well, well, so you're that slick blackbird who flew the clue. Cheer up. You only owe us 11 months. You're lucky you escaped before the new law. There's one on the books now. It penalizes escapees with up to an extra year. And I said, uh, what a shame it isn't retroactive. So he goes, I'm going to put you in a punishment cell for a few days. Nothing personal. Hell, you didn't hurt me with your escape. Tell me, how did you do it? I said, sir, I wish I knew. I am subject to states of fugue. I came to that night and I was walking down the highway a free man. Sir, I certainly wish I could tell you how I did it. His pale, cold eyes hardened into blue and his grin widened. He said, Oh, it's all right, my boy. Tell you what, you're a cinch to get a clear memory of just how you did it before long. Put in a request to the cell house officer to see me when you regain your memory. Well, good luck till we meet again. So they take him down to solitary. It was a tight box designed to crush and torture the human spirit. I raised my arms above me. My fingertips touched the cold steel ceiling. I stretched them out as to the side. I touched the steel walls. I walked seven feet or so from the bar door to the rear of the cell. I passed a steel cot. Mm. What was the worst solitary you were in, Steve? Were you in a? Were you ever put in the box? Yeah, I was in the box too. I was in a box, and it was called uh, adverse segregation. Um, it's the whole, just a fucked up cell in that motherfucker for uh, a couple weeks in the county there was a hole where they feed you juke juke balls 
juke balls. Juke balls. Which is just just like whatever's left over, ground yeah, up. Yeah, bound. Yeah, ground up and baked. Ugh. Yeah. Sounds awful. Yeah, so I've been in a couple of those situations. Yeah. He said like he was in a steel box. He was in it for eleven months. That's gnarly. And he said that. I the, wasn't in no steel box for eleven months. He said like after like the third or fourth night, he woke up. Somebody was screaming. He was pleading with someone not to kill him. And then he heard these thudding sounds. And he went to the cell door and he was like, asking another guy's close by, kind of like, what's going on or whatever. And he's like, don't worry, it's just the screws beating somebody down. He said that he was in that box for so long that eventually started hearing voices. And he said that uh, at the end of the fourth month, his skull was shaking on his shoulders. He said that someone like on the row, he said some con on the row blew his top. He just woke up the whole cell house. At first he was cursing God and his mother and then the screws brought him past my cell. And like when he saw him, it almost drove him into madness. He was buck naked and jabbering a weird madman's language through a foamy jib. It was like the talking in tongues holy rollers do. He was jacking off with a stiff swipe. By the way, he refers to a penis as a swipe. That's your swipe. He was jacking off with a stiff swipe with both hands. I nod into my pillow like a runt to keep from screaming. He said at some point, the thing that kept him from going totally nuts was that some guy had once told him, all of us play movies in our minds. He's like, and a lot of dumb people play awful movies. The images that they look at in their minds make them look like losers and trapped and bad luck and all this other shit. But if you can get control of the movies you're playing in your mind, then you can survive anything. But you got to take control and you got to only visualize and imagine and see the movies in your mind that make you feel good, that make you, that empower you. And at a certain point when he's in that, jail cell or whatever it is he's like i had to absolutely stop thinking bad dark thoughts i had to start pushing my mind into something else mm-hmm. and Good advice yeah and so and by the way he was stuck in that box right one of the guys that was in the jail with him that was a trustee was a guy that Iceberg Slim stole his woman from him. Mm. So he was tripping because he was like, I don't want that. And that guy eventually threw an entire bucket of shit into that box and coated him with shit. And it took him, I don't know how long, to get all the shit off of him and anything else. Mm. So all of that, 11 months in the box, shit, his fucking people losing their minds he said bugs. he said that night i heard a voice for the first time the lights were out the cell house was quiet the voice seemed to be coming through a tiny grill at the head of the cot a light always burned in the breezeway behind the grill the pipes for all the plumbing for the cells was there i got down on my hands and knees and looked through the grill's tiny holes i couldn't see anybody I got back on the cot. The voice was louder and clearer, and it sounded friendly and sweet like a woman consoling a friend. I wondered if cons on one of the tiers above me was clowning with with me with each other. 
I heard my name in the flow of the chatter. I got back down and listened to the grill. I mean, imagine, God's like in this box and he's hearing this voice and he's like looking at the grill and putting his ear down to the grill. A light flooded the corner. It was the screw. I spun around my knees facing him. The light was in my eyes. He said, what the hell are you doing? I said, officer, I heard a voice. I thought somebody was working back there. He said, oh, you poor bastard. You won't pull this bit. You're going nuts, Slim. Now stop the nonsense and get in that cot and stay there. The cell house lights woke me up. My first thought was Leroy. That's the guy he stole the woman from. I got up and sat on the cot. Then I thought about the voice. I wasn't sure now. Maybe it had been a dream. I wonder if I should ask the screw about it. One thing for sure, dream or not, I didn't want to go nuts. My mind hooked on to what I'd heard the old con philosopher say about the screen in my skull. I remembered what the books in the federal prison said about voices and even people that only existed inside a joker's skull. I thought, after this, when I get the first sign of a sneaky worry thought or idea, I'll fight it out of my skull. Maybe I wasn't dreaming when I heard the voice. If I hear it again, I'll have some protection. I'll keep strong, sane voice inside to fight off anything screwy from going on. Every moment, I'll stand guard over my thoughts until I get out of here. I can do it. And that's what he did. <laughs> How did uh, you said before that this is where he realizes that he's not going to be a pimp? Yeah. He. Let's see. I had a very sad day around the middle of the seventh month. A booster from New York busted on his second day in town was on the tier above me. A con on my row several cells down called me one night to borrow a book. A moment later, I heard my name called up from above. He came down next morning and rapped to me. His job was in the cell house. The booster asked me if I were the iceberg who was the friend of party time. That was one of the dudes he knew, party time. I told him yes. He didn't say anything for a while. Finally, he told me Party had often spoken of me as the kid he once hustled with who grew up to be Iceberg the Pimp. He told me Party had copped the beautiful girlfriend of a dope dealer when he got a bit. Party turned her out. The dope dealer did his bit. The broad tried to cut Party loose to go back to a life of ease. Party went gorilla on her. He broke her arm. Two months later, Party copped some H. He didn't know his connection was the pal of the dealer who got the bit and it was the H was all mixed with flakes of battery acid. I didn't sleep that well that night. I had come to a decision in that awful cell. I was through with pimping and drugs. I got insight that perhaps I could never have hoped to get outside. I couldn't have awakened if I had been serving a normal bit. After I got the mental game down pat, I could see the terrible pattern of my life. Can you speak on that, Steve? Like, he had to mentally get strong because of the voice, and he had to be much more mentally, like, guarded. And as a result, he was able to come to the decision that he was through with pimping, that he was through with his life of crime. As if, have you ever come across that, or can you, can you relate to that at all? You know, doing, doing some time... In some places, you might get a little bit um, used to it. You get used to your surroundings or it becomes more and more okay. And you can deal with it and deal with the repercussions. But then when you get like handed like a shoe term, 
and then you're in like a cell for like a year, you know? You just you and your celly or you're just locked down for a while like that. It changes you. Like it, it's harder. That's that's doing a harder time and that makes you take a ref, reflect even more about what you're doing and who you are and 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 I definitely think that in solitary or you know when I was in the hole in the shoe that was when I had really made up my mind I wasn't coming back to prison anymore. Like when I got out of that shoe program, I was like, man, I'm, I'm done with this shit, you know. So I think some places make you have to reflect more. Some places have more and more of an effect on you. Um, Iceberg said, "Mama's condition and my guilty conscience had a lot to do with my decision." Mm-hmm. Perhaps my age, he was a little older now, mm-hmm. loss of youth played their parts. Mm-hmm. I had found out that pimping is for young men. How old was he at this point in time? He's, he said, now here I was, slick but not smart, <clears throat> in a cell. I was past 40 with a counterfeit glory in my past and no marketable training, no future, I had been a bigger sucker than a square mark. All he loses is scratch. I had joined a club that suckered me behind bars five times. Mm. A good pimp has to use great pressure. It's always in the cards that one day that pressure will backfire. Anyway, his mom's close to death and he's able to tell the guard or whoever it is, the captain, like, look, you got me down for 11, but really I should only be down for 10. And whatever it was that he tells that guard and whatever that look is in, in Iceberg Slim's eyes convinces the guard, like, he's, he's, ready, to, he's ready to go back. He's, he's actually changed. Mm. And he goes back and he lives with his mom in, El South, in, Los, in Los Angeles, South, uh, South Central, mm. Inglewood. Okay. Like right over there, Compton. Okay. He lives right over there. Um, and he goes over there and um, he's living with his mom. And for, but for about six months, his mom's alive and they just hang out together. He's, he's nothing now. I mean, he's just a shell in the sense of he's got no money. He's got no whores. He's got no job. He's got no education. He's got no papers. He's got nothing. But he promised his mom that he would see her before she died. And, it, and, he, and he made that happen. And he got there. And so they would sit. This is the final like amends and res- resolution, you know. His mom was not unaware that she had some part to play in his lack of trust and his loss of whatever. She had like really tried very hard to help him straighten back out. Like one of her suggestions to him when he'd gone to prison a couple times said you know, you like to hang out with crooks and, and street people. Why don't you just become a lawyer and defend them? Then then you at least you would get paid to hang out with them. And later he was like, man, I should have followed that advice. That was good advice. But they let bygones be bygones. And he laid in bed with her for like six months. And they just talked about the old days and whatever else until she passed away. And when she passed away, he promised her, I'm going to get married and I'm going to have children. And what he did was he found a woman at a hamburger stand. Like 
near Carney's, I think, the one, the hot dog place. Uh-huh. He found always, the Carney's is always in the mix. Always in the mix. Uh-huh. He finds this woman, and I think you should hear kind of like what his, his wife sounds like, let's say. I had come out here to California because I was just bored, so I came out here. <clears throat> That's his I had worked for a hamburger stand, and so this guy started stopped by there. He looked like a professional to me, either a doctor, a lawyer, or a president of some bank. Iceberg. Impeccably dressed. Shoes shined, car spotless, just unbelievable. He said, could I take you somewhere where you could eat something besides a hamburger? I said, what the hell? <laughs> so we go and we eat. And um, I drink. She's given this interview, by the way, in bed with one of those like thin cigarettes, like those dark rolled thin cigarettes. I mean, can't you just envision what kind of woman this is just by her voice? I mean, it's, it, and by the way, she looks exactly however you envision a woman with a voice like that is exactly how she looks. Drink too much which I usually did back in those days. I drank all of my whiskey and all of anybody else's whiskey I could get my hands on. And I got sick like I had never been sick before in my life. And he took me to emergency room. The doctor said that I was, um, I was four months, around four months pregnant. I said, you've got to be lying. And he said, no, and then I started crying and Bob came in. He said, Bob, his name is Robert Beck. That's Iceberg's real name. And she was calling him Bob. I said, didn't they tell you what's wrong with me? And he said, yeah. I said, and, and who's going to help take care of me? And he said, I am. So he took me over to the apartment where he was living with his mother. He married a man that worked for the railroad. So... Anyway, so to kind of like fast forward through this, right? She says that originally what happens is, so Iceberg Slim now is gone straight, square. He's got no education, nothing. Got nothing going. Except he wants to make his mama fulfill his promise to his mom. He does that. Now what's he going to do? The only thing that he can think to do, he had a couple of different things going on. First thing was, he got a job as an exterminator for Western... Extermination. Yes. Yeah, I know, Western exterminators. Western exterminators. Yeah. You know that giant Yeah, sign? the guy with the fucking hammer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. Spot. right. So he's doing that. He's working for... Think about this. This pimp, right, before he makes the books and all this other shit, he's working for them. And he figures out pretty quickly, like, it's a lot of work for not much pay. And he's making, I think he's doing, so he decides, I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to become an exterminator. And so what does he do? He makes up these phony cards, right? And he puts like his buddy as the president of the company with his name on it and all this other stuff and does this whole, make it look like a legit business. And he goes door to door. He's like one of the best salesmen ever. In fact, he went to different jobs to try to get 
hired as a salesman. And because he was black, these, these really normal white corporate outfits wouldn't hire him, even though everybody who came into contact with Iceberg Slim knew that he was maybe one of the best salesmen of forever. And Iceberg knew it because he's like, how are you going to tell me I can't sell and I can control eight women to go out and do blah, 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 blah. Plus, he knew every con in the book, right? So he pretends that, okay, fine, fuck it. I'll just do my, I'll do it. I don't need to be with the company to do extermination. I'll do it. Go sign and keep all of the money for myself, which is what he does. And for a while, he's sitting there selling with a suit and then coming back later and spraying for roaches and rats and all that other shit. And his wife's like, he'd come home. She talks like, she'd come home and shake his suit and all these roaches and shit would fall out of it. That's <laughs> <laughs> true story. And uh, he was doing that for a while. And they were trying to make ends meet. And they weren't living too well. They, they had to, they got, after his mom passed away. She said, by the way, when his mom died, she said, I've never seen anybody hurt like that. First, mm. she said he suffered for real bad for a while. And he didn't drink. At this time, he stopped drinking totally and stayed off the drugs and all this other shit. Smoked a little weed every once in a while. Anyway, he, um, so then he uh, is coming home to broke. They've got three girls, which he says, gotta be my punishment for all the mm -hmm. shit that I did to women. For sure. Okay. So Ian then goes like, he's like, but when he would come home from exterminating, he, was, he would come home and tell stories of the old pimping lifestyle that he was doing and tell all these crazy stories. And his wife's got this great bit where, because it's his wife who comes up with the idea of making a uh, book. Right. She's the one that comes up with it because she doesn't believe him. When he explains the pimping game to him, she said, you mean to tell me that you could convince some woman to go out and fuck somebody else and give you money? No way. It's like she wouldn't believe it. And he would go further into the stories. These stories would rivet her. And she said, you know what? We should start writing this down. This is good. And he'd come home and act it out. They said he was a natural actor. Said he was just an amazing mimic. He could mimic all the different people. He had all the different voices. Sweet top, sweet poison, fucking party time, you know, chili pepper, whatever. Mm -hmm. He had them all. And he would tell the stories. And his daughters even said they would watch the, the dad and his mom put on these plays as they were describing all the different shit that was going down. Mm -hmm. and she was writing it down. She saw an ad in the Sentinel paper, which was the black publication at the time. Mm -hmm. And she said there was a small ad for Holloway looking for black experienced writers. They went down there. They fucking told, uh, they took some of the manuscript, gave it to them. Guy read it, said, this is unfucking believable Wrote him a $5,000 check advance back. That time was a lot of money. Hell yeah. They took that money and they delivered the book in two months. And after that, it was just on and cracking. And they, they didn't, they, they weren't allowed to be in any place like, you know, there, I mean, there wasn't Barnes and Nobles back then, but the New York literary scene did not consider like Iceberg Slim's, you know, memoirs of a pimp or whatever, to be any real literary anything. Even though, as time went on, and the more books he put out, and his style, it gave rise to Donald Goins, 
and a lot of other important uh, black experience authors who came through Holloway House. And even eventually, though, he his style and his writing became praised and praiseworthy. And he eventually they started making like one of the one of the first black black exploitation films was made out of. Uh, his book, I can't remember, it was Trick Baby or something like that, but they made it, and he got a $25,000 upfront check at that time, which allowed him and his wife to buy a house. And she said that he walked in, he had cashed the check, took it all in cash, and bought a $10,000 mink coat and threw that on the bed with a bunch of cash and said to his wife, what do you think about that? Mm-hmm. And she's like, I didn't ask you for a mink coat. I don't even like coats. You know that. And he's like, well, you're going to like that one. And so uh, he started to have some success and his daughter started to see that he was having some success. And pretty soon, I mean, some of the craziest stuff. Wait, Sean, you look like you're going to say something. Some of the craziest stuff is that once he hits this high point, now he starts becoming recognized in the community, um, in the African-American community. He's living down in South Central now. Now he's like a celebrity. Right. When he walks outside, people recognize him. They've read his books. People are writing him fan mail. There's guys in prison who've written him fan mail that are saying, like, I want to write what you wrote, but about crack cocaine. And he's giving advice and he's telling everybody. And um, one of the things that is that I thought was the craziest thing was that his one of his biggest fans was Mike Tyson. And Mike Tyson would visit him regularly and would spend time with him and like just try to learn like from him. And Mike Tyson uh, like really looked up to him. Um, Mike Tyson met Iceberg Slim in 1988 shortly after um, he had become champion and married actress Robin Givens. While Mike Tyson was partying one night at Los Angeles Club with Leon Isaac Kennedy, star of the cult classic penitentiary films, the actor offhandedly mentioned he knew Beck. Tyson, who was a devoted reader, and he had been a big fan of Iceberg Slim's work for years, wanted to meet him. So Kennedy takes him over there. As Tyson remembered the first meeting, I sat down and talked with him for seven, seven hours straight. We talked about his life and his books. I thought he would talk like a crude street guy, but he was very erudite and spoke nobly. He enunciated each syllable precisely. At this moment, Tyson realized that he and Beck had a lot in common. Although Tyson's reputation as an illiterate street thug, he was in fact actually very well read in a variety of subjects. Did you know that? No. Did you know that, Steve? No. He loved the works of Oscar Wilde, Charles Darwin, Machiavelli, Leo Tolstoy, Alexandra Dumas, Adam Smith, and Frederick Nietzsche. Did you know that, Mike Tyson? Nietzsche and Tolstoy, I love them too. Right. And he studied the lives of, you know, Alexander the Great, Vladimir Lenin. Tyson admired Beck's book knowledge as well as his street sensibility. He also respected his style. After all, Beck was the first black man he knew to wear ascots and French cuffs. Tyson started making regular trips out to see him. Sometimes he came alone. Other times uh, he came, brought with him his manager, Don King. Right? Remember that guy with the hair? Oh, yeah. I know Don King. Hey, have, you ever met, have you ever met Don King? No, but he's a real, real piece of work, that guy. Yeah, he like ripped off a lot of his fighters mm-hmm. and other, other kinds of shit, right? He went yeah. fucking to prison for a murder. Whoa, I forgot. 
forgot about mm-hmm. that. What was that? Do you remember? Got that? it off on like a manslaughter case or something like that. Do you remember what that murder was? I forget now. So Don King would like come along and then like, you know, Iceberg would run these rap sessions like a college course. He sat on his bed in silk pajamas like a like a like a black Hugh Hefner uh, while Tyson and his companions parked at his feet, raising their hands in order to answer to, to ask him questions. Iceberg explained lessons from the pimp book. He lectured Tyson on his troubled relationships with women and pushed him to think more deeply about his unconscious drives and motivations. As Tyson recalled, Iceberg told him one day, you're going to have to leave here and have women problems all your life because you'll just fuck anything. And then you want to give them all full speed ahead and you want to give them all everything you got. You just will always have women problems, boy. I see you're into satisfying every woman and you're going to lose at that every time. Damn. Damn, I like that right there. Iceberg Slim telling Mike Tyson, you let them invade your mind, you're going to always have some kind of connection with them or they're going to have some kind of connection with you because you have to satisfy that feeling and that's very dangerous. Dangerous to yourself, you put that pressure on yourself, you don't feel good, you don't satisfy that woman, that's a problem with your mother. Mm -hmm. There's some connection that you have with your mother. Mm-hmm. Beck's insights, Iceberg's insights about Tyson's dangerous relationship with women were prophetic. The next year, Tyson was publicly accused of assault by his wife, Robin Givens. Mm-hmm. And a few years after that, he was convicted of rape, Desiree Washington, and ultimately served three years in prison. Can you imagine that? And do you know that Ty- he never asked any money from Tyson, but Tyson paid for him to be buried at Forest Lawn in the mausoleum because uh, Iceberg never wanted to be buried in the ground because he didn't want the roaches or anything eating his flesh. So Mike Tyson's the one that gave wow. him 15K or whatever it was to be buried up in the mausoleum. And, you know, Slim didn't die rich. He should have. I'm not going to go into all the unpublished books he's still got out there and, you know, whatever else. There's a lot, there's a lot more. It's, we're getting long in the tooth here. There's a lot more. But he didn't die rich because Holloway pinched his uh, royalties. Sad. But he, was, he wasn't that focused on money towards the end. He didn't care. He was more focused on really trying to give voice to the black experience. And he was also trying to rectify and or re reshape sort of what uh, what he saw was happening in the 80s to African Americans in Los Angeles. And he was saying that like he felt that all of the progress that was made by civil rights and all that stuff was getting rolled back by Reagan. And he bl- he said there was 70,000 jobs lost in LA. And that's when the crack epidemic hits and now, you know, the only prospects for a lot of African-American people were to sell drugs at that time. He also watched, and I, I want to do a show on this. I mean, seriously. He watched because he loved the Black Panthers because he believed that they were true revolutionaries. He said, if you're, if you're turning out your own kind, he looked at his own career and he said, you know, I was a pimp and I was harming my black sisters. And he's like, if you're doing that, then you're counter-revolutionary because you're going against... 
liberation of your own people. If you're taking advantage of your own people, you're counter-revolutionary. You can't do that. And he started to really speak out on that. And then he was going into that, that the Black Panthers weren't about money. That's what he loved about the Black Panthers. They weren't about money and they weren't going to take shit off nobody. And so as a result, he was a very... But he also watched how the Black Panthers were targeted by the FBI and the LAPD here in Los Angeles and they were pushed out and that vacuum was allowed to be filled by black gangs selling drugs. And I feel like we need to do like a real in-depth cool show about the Black Panthers and that what L.A. did with Daryl Gates. Bro, you got to watch. There's a documentary that talks about it heavily. And it's called Bastards of the Party. It's on HBO. You can YouTube it now. Okay. Bastards of the Party. And it talks all about it. talks in depth about what you're talking about. And it takes you through the history of Los Angeles. And how really... It was a thing that came between Black Panther and gangs. I'm as the watch Black that Panthers tonight. got died, as they squished and they, you know, locked up and killed and right. got rid of them. Right. It was. It was. It was the gangs and it was Crips and it was like it's a whole. It's a whole story. Well, you got to watch the documentary. Uh, I'm, gonna I'm gonna watch, watch that. that tonight. Yeah, and it talks about everything that you just said in the last two minutes. So uh, when I was reading through, because I read also not just Iceberg Slim, but about. Iceberg Slim from a biography from a really great writer and he was talking about his political work afterwards and like sort of there's a lot more to the story we just didn't get to it but point is is he, he was saying so so Iceberg's old enough to have seen so many variations of the black experience in America that he was able to pinpoint and say Ronald Reagan began this new right Mm-hmm. This new right that set to shutting down whatever the freedoms and whatever space that we that, Reaganomics, right? And he said, as a result, that's how. Uh, and he was very concerned about it. How drugs and gangs and all this other stuff took over this area, and um, he really, it really. It, I think it might have been one of the greatest contributions, and he even. You know, they were saying in his writing style, he's got a, like some of his later books, he even wrote sympathetically about a white, white cop, a white detective. And he was saying that, and he was like a big fan of James Baldwin and all this other stuff, but he said, you got to come to a point in your life in catharsis where you can really look at even, even your villains or whoever you think your villains are with, um, some empathy so that you can understand that they're humans not that they did something right or wrong but how people got to this and um the book ends and you might want to you might want to you know the book ends with this letter that was written to him and i'm gonna read this letter and we're gonna go out on this um as a kind of a eulogy for iceberg slim and yeah. Robert Beck, and like you know in you know I, I highly recommend reading this if you want to know anything about America, you want to know anything about the this experience, uh, we should do this. So uh, I'm going to read this letter and yes, please. do your thing. Dear Brother Beck, respected elder, this letter is way overdue. Please forgive the lateness, but I do have this flaw of procrastinating. I just turned 40 on May 27th of this year. Back during the summer of 1970, when I was 18, I read Pimp, the story of my life. 
And over the next year, I read Trick Baby, Mama Black Widow, and The Naked Soul of Iceberg Slim. And over the following years, I read Death Wish, Long White Con, Airtight Willie and Me, as well as some articles you wrote for Players Magazine. Big shout out to Players Magazine. I would like to thank you so very much for your writings. First, I'd like to thank you because your writings inspired me to read more. And that was so important for a person who was not inclined to read. The expanding of my ability to read got me through college. My grandparents were sharecroppers in South Carolina and Georgia. My mother and brothers and sisters busted their backs in those fields as children. And as adults put out the same kind of energy in the factories of the northern cities. And to be the first of their line to receive a college diploma made me very proud. For it gave vindication to their years of work and love for their children. Thank you for the part you played in that process. I only played on the fringes of the underworld. I never allowed myself to get truly involved with any illegal activities. Yes, there were times deals were in the process. And the money to be made was a lot. And a guy with the right money and reputation could have all kinds of things. But the lesson of your life experiences stayed in my mind. What's that Slim said? Out of all the shit he did, all of that time in jail, all those risks of injury and death, all of that emotional abuse he did to others and himself, and when the whole thing was over with, he did not have a dime more than when he started. By the way, back in the May of 1989, I won some money on the Kentucky Derby. I took some of that month and did something I always wanted to. I bought a seven-day Greyhound bus pass. I toured several cities in the Midwest. When I arrived in Milwaukee, I felt like Malcolm X visiting Mecca. This was the week of July 4th. That afternoon, I traveled the city. Strange, except for the wider streets. Your area of Milwaukee looked very similar to the area of Newark where I first recalled as a child. I stood on 7th and Blay, 7th and Apple. The area's been renovated, but I pictured what it must have seemed like to you in the twilight in spring. As I write this, it's early June. Father's Day is approaching. Happy Father's Day. Nice. 